The charm is how completely out of sync it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, for for a given value of charm, like I think it's about as charming as when you you know like when you when you go over to to someone's like a new parent's house and they have a they have a toddler who's maybe said like one word and they're like oh look like she she can say it again go on say it there and you're kind of just like you know and then they garble out something that's incoherent you're like oh yeah it sounded like mammy all right <laughs> like that, that's that's our listeners with our kind of tone deaf cat being strangled rendition of that theme tune they're like oh yeah lovely now get to actually discuss in the fucking book <laughs> and on that note welcome to radio Morport friends the podcast where we discuss terry pratchett's Discworld series one book at a time rating reviewing analyzing and rambling and ranking i am colin my co-host as ever is Steve. That's the fella. And today we are discussing Making Money, the second book in the Moist von Lipwig subseries of Discworld books. Hmm. Had you read this one before, Colin? I, I can't remember if you Yeah, uh, but I, I think I'd read it very like my copy is a hardback and I feel like like it came out in two thousand seven and, and I think I might have gotten either for like Christmas of two thousand seven or my my birthday is is early in the year, so like early uh, two thousand eight, um, and I don't think I'd read it since then. Like since since I got it, geez, mm, you know, more than a decade ago now. But yeah, so it was an interesting one to revisit, particularly as when I read the first time. I hadn't read Going Postal before, weirdly enough. So obviously, I was coming to it with more in mind about about Moist and that that whole uh, milieu and and tone of of his books. I feel like um, you could probably read it like without reading Going Postal. Just when I was reading it, I felt like there wasn't an awful lot you needed to know about Going Postal going into this. But um, yeah, yeah, um, like he, he sort of set up quite early. You know, he's in charge of the post office, and they they kind of allude to his conman past. I I think the one thing you wouldn't miss out about is is his relationship with um, Adora, which obviously kind of shapes over Going Postal and here. Uh, well, here for one, she's gone for for a good chunk of early on in the book. But then when when she comes back, they're just together, and um, you wouldn't have any. I suppose you would lack something not knowing what's led them to that point. But but we'll get to that in time. I suppose we should recount the plot first. So yeah, as as we said, this is about uh, Moist von Lipwig. This is the second book in his uh, mini series uh, within the Discworld series. So when we left him after going postal, he was the postmaster general of the post office. He basically revived. It was it was a completely defunct institute uh, at that point, but he basically revived it to make it like one of the most successful public offices in the entire city. So he is basically um, bored in his role at this point. Now he's taken to scaling the rooftop of his post office uh, just to see if he can, just for the thrill of being caught, because. It's kind of implied that he misses his old days of uh, thieving and conning. Um, but after after a brief spell, he's visited once again by Lord Vetinari, the patrician, who tries to persuade him to take over the bank of Ankh-Morpork, the, the main bank of Ankh-Morpork. He brings him to the bank to kind of show him around, and he introduces him to Topsy Lavish, who is the sole... Uh, well, not sorry, not the soul. Uh, she is the the chairwoman. What's the word? Chairwoman. Uh, chair. She. What's the word I'm looking for? She has the most shares. Uh, oh, share, uh, majority shareholder. Majority shareholder. Yes. 
yeah, she's the majority shareholder of the bank in question. When she meets Moist, she basically sees through him instantly. She's completely aware that he's a con man. Terry Pratchett likens her to one of those dirty old women who loves making like uh, filthy innuendos, uh, but is nonetheless very, very likable. Uh, Moist obviously gets on with her very, very well. And while he's there, he's also showed around the bank by Mr. Bent, who is a very straight-laced fellow, to put it mildly. What happens then, Colin? Moist is initially quite reluctant to take on the task of, of uh, managing the, the bank. Like he's, he's sort of curious to, to look around, but he, he's very um, loath to be manipulated by veterinary into doing this. And obviously, unlike in Gung Postal, where his, his choice was essentially be killed or take over the post office, he feels he kind of, you know, he, he has a choice here. He can return to uh, to his work at the post office, even though, as you said, it's it's clear to us by this point that it's no longer inspiring him in the way that it did. So he refuses, and Veterinary seems at first to take this, you know, uh, on the chin, but it's clear that Veterinary believes Moist will take up the, the management of the bank uh, sooner or later because he knows his character so well. However, it, it doesn't even have to come to that because Topsy Lavish um, dies, and in her will, she leaves all of her cha- shares to her dog, Mr. Fusspot, but leaves Moist care of the dog. Uh, and also then has Assassin's Guild contract taken out on Moist that will basically has the proviso that if any harm befalls the dog, this, this contract will be carried out and, and Moist will be killed. So then Moist is essentially left in charge of the bank. He has to reckon with Topsy's in-laws, the Lavishes, uh, the family of her late husband, who was the Sir Joshua, who was the original, um, well, the original, but the, the previous uh, chairman of the bank. The lavishes are very um, suspicious of Moist. They feel that the bank, while it's the main public bank in Ankh-Morpork uh, that serves people, they sort of feel it should be their private plating to operate. Uh, chief among them is Cosmo Lavish, who has a, an obsession with Lord Veterinary and, and emulating him in every way. And this just kind of runs through the book. He has a servant called Heretofore, who he like is, is sort of conning him into paying for artifacts that he thinks belong to veterinary but in fact that they're they're forgeries so cosmo then takes moist on a uh, a coach ride and, and tries to intimidate him with a certain amount of success moist is getting interviewed by by, by satirissa uh chris block from from the yank Park times about what he's going to do with the bank and the way he's going to modernize it in a similar way that he did the post office and he, he sort of ends up talking himself into this idea about um the bank being the the bank more for currency being on the gold standard being this archaic procedure that that should be abandoned and that his bank is is going to to do so without really knowing what it is he's going to do but this eventually leads him towards the idea of paper money and he sort of tests it out with a kind of like iou note from him that he uh he, he has uh circulating eventually in, in pursuing this he has to free a forger called Ellswick Clamp, who has uh, been uh, arrested for forging stamps, which, as we saw in Gung Postal, were sort of be- beginning to be used as a de facto currency. But the, the feeling is that Ellswick is sort of... Um, <laughs> he's harmless, to use that that, uh, mm. that, that kind of infamous <laughs> Irish phrase. Uh, I don't know how familiar other listeners are this, but you, you, it would always be like a proviso attached onto... If, if someone very strange or, you know, like like uh, someone possibly like, you know, um, 
mental issues of some way was being described it would be just amend, amended to the end of it like ah but he's harmless as if yeah. you kind of like, <laughs> suspect that, that you know this person is going to kill you otherwise because they're a bit odd he's kind of I think you could say he's uh, in a similar mindset in a way to uh, Leonard de Quirm yes um, yeah he is who who very, who very much is happy in his own devices but whereas Leonard de Quirm is very much a genius like in a multitude of senses Owlswick is kind of very much focused on the artistic sense and for some reason on forgeries uh, he states at one point that he can't create things from nothing he needs to be able to copy something and then he develops it from there so while all this is going on it should be noted that Miss Adorabelle Deerheart or Spike as Moist uh, Poist's pet nickname for her uh, she's nowhere to be seen because she is off working with the Golem Trust in the ancient civilization of Um. She's trying to uncover uh, golems who have been, like, she believes that they have been buried under underground. Um, she's ha- She has an agreement with the low king of dwarfs that basically whatever she finds there, she has to give a certain percent, quite a large percentage of it uh, to the dwarfs. So they're wondering why exactly it is that she's uh, digging, like, what could she know? But anyway, while she is working, she sends a telegram to Moist saying she's coming back and... She basically, she thinks she has found four golden golems. That's that's what she believe. Like, she's looking at ancient translations, and what she thinks that she has uncovered is four golden golems. She comes back to Ankh-Morpork to kind of get a little more clarity on this. Uh, she goes to the Unseen University, where they she and Moist talk to the not-necromancers. Um, it was, sorry, I've forgotten the name. Can the you remember off the top of your post-mortem communications. That was it, yes. The not me- me- necromancers at all. Using their help, they summon a very old man. I've forgotten his name as oh, well. Oh, Professor Fleed. Yes, Professor Fleed, who is, as he's exceptionally old. It's, it's implied that he was around during the time that this civilization was up and running, basically. No, I, I don't think he's quite that old, because he still has to... Um, like He still talks about having to, the difficulty of translating Omnian. In a way that, oh. at least implied to me, it was just like like he's kind of like the equivalent of, of getting someone today who'd be like an expert in you know speaking ancient Hebrew or or ancient Egyptian mm. or something. Yeah, they don't actually say how old he is. I remember at one point, just moist in his internal monologue, says, "Oh my God, is he that old?" So I assume that he might have been around that, but he might have been around that age, but uh, maybe oh, well, not. Well, but... well, if I recall correctly, that reference in Moist's internal monologue is uh, a reference to the fact that, that Flea doesn't seem to cotton on when he's talking about um, strip clubs. Uh, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> so it, it might be so much that he predates the strip club, as he, uh, yeah. <laughs> which, you know, after all, is, is kind of uh, adjacent to, if not quite the same as um, the oldest profession. But mm. he, um, I suppose, like, he's so kind of old and fusty that that whole world is a million miles away to him so um basically uh spike i'm just going to call her spike because it's more it rolls off the tongue easier um she basically tasks him with translating this i believe it's is it, it's an arm isn't it an arm that she brings back or is it a, a foot the golden um, foot? it's 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 an arm isn't it they find it's the, an no, arm it's the foot. And, and, uh, yeah no it's an arm because they, they've got a foot in that uh there was it the, the, the tree thing yeah yeah the 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 oh god this it, is it um, sort of unfolds it, it's it was a compartment a closet uh 
positive knowledge or something like yeah. this is something that we're going to come back to when we're talking about the themes of it because that was a bit that stuck out to me a little bit in this book basically she brings back uh, an arm from the dig which has some uh, ruins or uh, ancient writing on it in Omnian and she tasks Professor Fleed with translating it so while he's doing that Moist is continuing to try and basically have a new measure of value that he can attribute to like the paper money so a lot of things are happening at this point. It's fairly hectic. Um, we have, what's his name? Oh my God, I'm so bad with names in this. The the guy who own, who runs the Dunny uh, Empire, I forget his name. Who runs the witch? He he runs that, uh, the Empire, the, the, the smelly guy. Oh, uh, <laughs> Harry King. Harry King, that's it. He he donates that a massive amount. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. He uh, he deposits a massive amount of money into uh, the bank when Moist Lomwig, uh, Moist Mon Lipwig uh, announces his plan. He's, he I think at this point, maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong. He has also told Sakarissa that he's getting rid of all the gold in the the vaults. Yeah, yeah. He kind of speaks like half flippantly, half seriously about selling it to the dwarves. Um, and and Harry King's example of depositing all the money because sort of he has, I, I suppose he sees a certain amount of himself and Moist in, in kind of coming from nothing and and you know tweaking the noses of the uh, the old money and and the established classes while becoming a, a big success. So when he deposits all of this money in the confidence that whatever Moist's crazy scheme is, it's, it's going to um, turn out well. You have then a lot of ordinary people in Ankh-Morpork who previously would have it's you know said that they would have had their money in socks under their beds and stuff. They're depositing their money in. Mister Bent is really unhappy with this, like uh, along with the, the he's he's sort of got this obsessive obsessive trust in the innate value of gold. So the idea of Moist giving away Ankh-Morpork's gold and opening up the bank to all of these you know other people is is something that that upsets him greatly. So Cosmo Lavish is able to lean on this. He he meets up with Mr. Bent, who his father had, had previously uh, employed at the bank. And it, it's implied that he knows some secret of Mr. Bent that we don't. It doesn't it isn't quite explicit blackmail because he's also sort of leaning on Mr. Bent's feelings of, of distrust towards Moist and encouraging them, you know, rather than just saying, if you do this or I'll, you know, tell everyone about your secret but it's it's definitely part of of what he's leaning on to to convince bent to help and bent then after making a very very rare mistake in his calculations goes awol moist realizes that bent is probably in the vaults of the bank but they can't get in because bent himself has the keys and also while bent is gone there's a you know a chaos around the bank and it's implied that it's kind of spilling over not only within the staff of the bank but also into the public that such as Mr. Bent's standing that without him that that trust people had in, in the bank to take care of their money and to run well has been eroded so they're predicting there'll be a run on the bank i.e. when you have a lot of people all uh, withdrawing their money at once so Moist is, is desperate to find Mr. Bent he, he realises he's in, in the vault but he has to essentially break into his own vault to uh, get Mr. Bent out since he's he's locked himself in. Once he does that, they find that Bent is in there, but also all of the gold is gone. So Moist is then sort of taken into custody. He's not quite charged with it at this point, but he's taken into custody with regard to the disappearance of the, of the gold. We also have around, at, at some point, 
this chap called Cribbins from Mike's past back in Uberwald shows up and it's implied he recognises him as Albert Spangler and he uh, Moist is a bit worried about what he might do he ends up going to, to Cosmo Lavish and the two of them are going to uh, work together it's implied to uh, to expose Moist and then we have the, the golems the golden golems march into the, the city at this point there's a bit of a shaking around the city Professor Flad tells uh, Spike in a great moment of you know foreshadowing that it turns out that the word for gold was actually mistranslated and it was actually to mean thousand so instead of four golden golems they have four thousand golems approaching the city and basically they come in and they have an army of golems basically sitting right in the middle of Ankh-Morpork itself and the head golem the main guy who has a mustache uh, drawn on him as a great way of distinguishing him as the leader i thought uh, he kneels down in the middle of Sater square and then just refuses to move as so, someone who legally can't grow facial hair um legally biologically and morally can't grow facial hair i take umbrage with the idea of the mustachioed one being the leader but go on <laughs> so yeah at this point when they all arrive everyone is trying to give the golems orders trying to get them to move just to find find a way to control them basically no one seems to be able to do it um spike can't do it and because she's the basically the head essentially the head of the golems trust it's quite surprising that she isn't able to professor flag can't do it nobody is able to move them at all basically um so veterinary does what veterinary does best he holds a committee so everybody comes in to discuss what to do with the golems there's a lot of talk about basically waging war or uh putting them to work into what is essentially slave labor um all these ideas which highlight the worst aspects of humanity basically come out during this committee meeting which it should uh, be said too with the the golden golems that unlike the the standard golems they don't have a a shem a shem like which is the piece of paper the piece of holy writ in their heads that tells them what to do which as we saw way back in feet feet of clay is key to how you free a golem you i think i think it's carrot isn't it he puts the the receipt of the of the uh in in dorval's head and that means he owns himself so Mm. Uh, Adora Bell's Golem Trust is its purpose is to, is to buy up all the the golems and, and free them uh, and ensure their their safety and well being. But she can't even do that with these ones because there's no way of of freeing them since they don't have a shame of their own. Sorry, I just mm. say it because it sort of colors the discussion they have about the the golems that it seems like yeah, freeing yeah. them isn't really an option. Yeah, so they're they're basically a massive enigma at this point because um, as well as even putting them to work, uh, even like in a fair sense, which they can't do, but if they were to do it, uh, another member of the Lavish family who we haven't discussed is actually uh, Hubert Lavish, who is also kind of depicted as being a little bit harmless. Um, <laughs> he, he is basically, he's been shoved into the basement of the banks. And while there, he's basically constructed this device called the Glooper, which is kind of a mirror of Ankh-Morpork's economic status. It, it, it basically it shows like how how the economy in Ankh-Morpork works through a series of glass vials and water and bubbles and that kind of thing. Basically, he comes in at that point telling them that if they put the golems to work, that will essentially bankrupt all of Ankh-Morpork because people will be out of jobs and the value of the dollar will ultimately decrease hugely and so on. So while all this is happening, someone, uh, Drumnot comes in and whispers in Veterinary's ear to tell him that 
Moist von Lipwig has managed to get the golems to move and he has sent them outside of the city. When they go outside, they discover that Moist has driven all of the golems outside the city walls and has ordered them to bury themselves underneath uh, underneath the ground. Veterinary basically demands to ask what the secret is, how he managed to convince the golems to do what he said, because considering nobody else could, and Moist refuses to answer. He offers a lot of suggestions on what to do with the golems. Uh, some of the some of the golems, sorry, should be mentioned, were golem horses, which we've never seen in the Discworld to this point. He requests some of them go to the post office, and he also suggests that one of them is given to the Dwarf King because mm-hmm. he deserves a percentage, uh, even though technically they're not his property because they walked out. They weren't property, per se. There's minor technicality there. He also suggests some of the golems go to the Clax Towers, to operate the basically the donkey wheels that they have there as opposed to the donkeys themselves and the rest of them should just be buried underground um, as kind of a safeguard of sorts and he's going to then use them to uh, they'll be the value in which the, the currency of Ankh-Morpork is based but he's then arrested for essentially like almost stealing the golems and, and stealing the, the gold as well but, but the idea is that since he's the only one to command the golems he essentially represents a huge threat he's like like the only person in the world with with nuclear codes or something it would be i suppose the, the nearest equivalent so in, during this trial then um mr bent returns and it turns out he's a, a clown that that had run away from the circus and he confesses to after they're trunk pies at the lavishes and at one at, at veterinary that mice kind of jumps in the way of he confesses to having taken the gold out of the, of the vaults years earlier at the, the lavish's behest and that it's now like their jewellery and so on. Poochie Lavish, uh, Cosmo's sister, sort of stands up and just basically ad- admits to this because she's so kind of obnoxiously <laughs> privileged that she can't imagine she, like that they'll be held accountable in, in any way. So this obviously takes the heat off Moist and, and, and on to... The lavishes at this point do earlier one of the, the many accoutrements the, of veterinary that, that uh, heretofore had purloined for Cosmo or rather had, had forged for Cosmo is a ring of stygium which is this metal that absorbs light uh, and obviously veterinary being a, a much uh, thinner man than Cosmo the ring is, is much smaller but Cosmo insists on not having it uh, what do you say with a ring you say widened rather than lengthened isn't it enlarged it's so in any case, he has this ring on his finger that's cutting off his circulation. And when he takes off his glove, you see this, it's sort of alluded that his hand has become this ruined. Moist takes him out into the sunlight and then the, the ring absorbing the light basically burns his finger off instantly. He later ends up in a ward full of people who are convinced they're Lord Veterinary. Uh, at, at this point, then, so the, the trial is ended. Mr. Bench returns to the bank and announces he's going to be married to, to Miss Drapes, one of the, the cashiers there who had held a torch for him for, for quite a while, we, we get the impression. Moist and Adorabelle take a journey with Veterinary, where Veterinary gets Moist to confess of how he was able to command the golems while revealing that he knew how he's able to command the golems. Veterinary then alludes to the fact that without quite saying it basically um, implying that he has given away the secret of how to command the golems to all of the other nearby rulers so essentially they they can't be used as a weapon by any one of the the powers around the stow planes because if, if one person 
can command them and then another ruler can just equally as you know countermand that command and they'd be they'd be going back and forth and so on and wouldn't be able to serve as a um as an army uh right at the end we have cribbins pops back up again tries to, to threaten moist and adora but his his uh antique dentures that he's been fiddling with the whole book basically backfire on him and end up grisly actually i think like mm, uh, yeah. slicing his tongue in two and there's a line about a spring ending up in his sinus like i winced when i was reading it um and that's about oh veterinary adopts mr fusspot as the uh kind of successor to oh, waffles yeah, yeah. His, his little mm. dog who, who uh we're i we're told here that waffles had, had died earlier when, when cosmo and heretofore are talking about veterinary as far as i know that's the first time we've heard that isn't it like it's 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 mentioned in other books how old the dog is, but I, I don't think he died. I think yeah, I think this is something that happens, you know, off page as it were. Because mm-hmm. I remember um, it's in Feet of Clay where he gets a lot of focus. That's the one where there's the assassination attempt on Veterinary, and they have to find Waffles because he's technically a witness. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think this is the first time we hear of him actually dying. So I think it does just essentially happen off page. But um, it's a nice little continuation on because it's mentioned quite a lot how old he is. And although Mr. Fusspot seems to be quite old as well, but um, whatever. But uh, just a little teaser at the end, a kind of Marvel movie after credits sequence sort, sort of thing where uh, Veterinary suggests that the chief tax collector has a very antiquated way of doing things and he's getting on in years and maybe a new name might pop up, uh, uh, present itself when they need to replace him. And it's kind of suggested that might be moist. And that's pretty much it. That's the end of the book. Yeah. Hell of a lot more convoluted than... Um, so Rincewind found this guy with four eyes and they went on a big adventure <laughs> and then they stopped. <laughs> Things had gotten much more convoluted here yeah. than uh, the yeah. early days. That's true. Um, there's a lot of... It, it, it says a lot actually how, you know, every now and then we'll mention something like, oh yeah, and this guy shows up and he's been mentioned like subtly at a few times here, which I think is a sign of a good writer actually that, um, you know little nuances you can't just say every, each and every individual thing that happens because otherwise you'll be there all day so you just have to that's as much of a summer as we can possibly do we could probably do we could probably shorten it a bit more but there's a lot more nuance nuance yeah there. there's a lot packed into this book more than more than i remembered to its to its credit and to its detriment i think uh ultimately it's it's but a strength and a weakness so get into that what mm. did you think of it so this is a very interesting one i think my gut instinct is I like it. I like the book. I think it's really good. Um, Moist has developed a lot more. Well, he's de- he's developed more. And he's as likable here as he was in Going Postal. Probably more so. Um, he has more to do. Um, it, it at times feels like a little bit of a repeat. But the themes are different. So I guess you can read into it. Like, if you're reading it on a thematic level, it's it's very different. But uh, in a narrative level, it's got very, very similar beats. Um, yeah, it's like you said, it's 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 a very convoluted book. There's a lot going on here and it's it manages to tie most of it together pretty well. But there's a couple of pieces that are a little like you tend to just kind of disregard or forget about because just, again there's just so much going on like that bit i'd actually i've just finished the book very recently and i'd actually forgotten about that bit with the um the giant tree in the unseen university that seems like a kind of a half-baked idea that was maybe planned to be developed more like it's a it's a great image the the idea that like it's essentially every i what was it 
I'm trying to remember the exact description. It's like every um, idea that has ever been put forward ever, they have like um, a reference to it in this filing cabinet, which it is essentially a tree, but it falls down into a filing cabinet. Yeah, it seems like it sort of runs on the same logic of, of L space. Mm. Uh, and, and the impression is it's grown too. Like um, Adora Bell talks about going to see it when she was younger with her father, and it just was a cabinet. Is it is it just a cabinet of curiosity? That feels like too plain a name, but but maybe that's what it is called. I think it's it's it speaks to what it's a it's a very very convoluted description of something that doesn't amount to very much in this book. It's probably one of the biggest flaws I feel because that like I mean. And this, I say it's one of the biggest flaws, which isn't to say it's a big flaw, because there's a lot this book does right, and I like quite a lot about it. But I think that's, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to say it stuck out the most to me, because as I said, I forgot about it. But thinking on it now, it probably is one of the biggest flaws. That like, quite a significant chunk of a chapter is dedicated to this thing that doesn't really lead to much. It's basically a way for um, a lead up into them contacting the not necromancers in the unseen university so yeah that's that's kind of the main thing that and the fact that as i said it's very convoluted but i think it just about holds it together for the most part i think it manages to keep all the plates spinning like there's it's in danger a couple of times but it manages to get away with it what about you what did you think i i think i i'm a bit less fond of it than than you are and and that's not to uh dismiss it completely in in a way i feel it's one that suffers by the fact that you know, we're reading all of these in sequence and it's what like the 36th book we read 37th or, or thereabouts where I, I feel like say if if you were just you know as many people do as i i would have originally picking up discworld books almost at random and reading them and you got to this one a couple in all, a lot of the ideas presented would seem really refreshing and engaging in a way that with 30 odd books behind it it's it sort of feels like it's retreading some old ideas in, in less interesting ways but i think fundamentally what's wrong with it for me is that it's sort of indisciplined and, and ill-structured as a book like when i was a hundred or so pages into it i, I was kind of aware I, I i like i'd read reviews and stuff before but i generally hold off on revisiting them when we do the books for this podcast until i've finished it and compiled a few thoughts of my own and then bounced them off of the thoughts of others and I was sort of aware that this wasn't particularly well thought of, and, and that particularly compared to Going Postal, it was seen as a bit of a step down. And I was 100 pages in, and I was thinking, wow, this is really good. Like, like I, I don't know what people, what, what this isn't doing for people. I think it's like at that point when you're 100 pages in, and you're presented with all of these ideas and, and interesting characters and so on, it's like, I can't wait to see what happens with these. And then by the end, there's just too many to do justice to. Like, I think mm. it's really summed up with, with, with Cribbins, who, um, you yeah. know, as an idea, I think is interesting enough, this idea that, like, Moist has sort of, uh, you know, um, had the second chance at life that Veterinary's given him through, through the, the false hanging, but hanging over him is the shadow of all this stuff he used to do in Uberwald, and his position as this beloved, fated figure in, in Ankh-Morpork's uh, high life could come crashing down if these secrets are revealed. So, like, I get the appeal of, of of such a character like Cribbins, like a spectre from moist past but he, he you know he pops up we get like that quite good scene i think with him and moist in, in the bank and then i like the scene with him impersonating the uh omnian minister because the, mm. the lady in the times I, I can't remember her name but but the way he's taken Separate. 
No, no, it's not Sekiro. It's a, it's, it's like a, like just a, a woman who works in the Times office. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, but the way he's taking advantage of her and kind of playing on the fact that it's clear that she's sort of quite, you know, quite lonely and things just really makes him feel kind of repulsive. And I, I suppose like, given that he's kind of set up as like a, a, a foil for for Moist, like a, a dark um, reflection of Moist's con man archetype. And Moist early on says things like. Oh, you know, like uh, Cribbins was much worse than I ever was when he's thinking to himself. But, you know, that's Moist thinking that. And and you could think, well, of course you'd say that, you know, but really, is this guy just you without the opportunity that Lord Vetinari's given you? But when you see him, the way the way he takes advantage of this woman, you you just think, oh, Moist wouldn't do this. This is horrible, you know, and, uh, and uh, but wanted me to see him get his comeuppance, but also curious to see what he what he'd do. And then in the end, like obviously his and Cosmo's plan falls apart in the courtroom. And then he just has this really perfunctory scene where he holds Moist and, and, and Spike up and then his teeth backfire on him, which feels like such a, I mean, it's almost literally a day you say Machina because Moist suspects it's, it comes from Anoya, who oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> the goddess he won fame for um, in Gung Postal. And at times throughout the book, he, he thinks to himself about how Anoya owes him one and, you know, he he deserves a miracle from her, and uh, like so, perhaps that's kind of set up. But but the perfunctory way it's dealt with just really sums it up for me. I I, I think then that ties into something else, which is because there's so much happening and so many ideas presented in this book, not all of them get the room to breathe they need. And I feel like while this is very much a book, an Ankh Morpork book, obviously set wholly in Ankh Morpork, with the exception of maybe that like one scene we get of Adora Bell. In uh, in Uberval dig- digging for the golems, it's wholly set Ang Morpork. It's all about Ang Morpork society. You have Moist talking about like how the value of money comes from a city and all the things you get in the city, but we don't see a lot of Ang Morpork life, and this sort of lets it down in many ways. And one of them is that that this idea of Moist's dark, mysterious past, like when when he's worried Cribbins will expose him. I get that idea in principle, but, but on the basis of what we've seen, I'm thinking, well, who is he going to expose him to? Because we know Veterinary knows, and Veterinary doesn't care, you know? So, and, and maybe, like, like that that's a, another thing I'll get to later, but the, the idea of, like, Moist, there's sort of, it's a Pratchett attempts to build a sense of stakes through Moist being afraid of Veterinary's wrath, but it's like we as readers know Veterinary too well to imagine mm-hmm. that he will kind of come down on Moist like a, like a ton of bricks but but in any case so what i feel like we could do more we could do it more of just ank Park life of where we would have people wondering oh moist von lipwig's made such a success at a post office who is he really like from people like satirissa from maybe even vimes and a watch like this feeling of you know mm. okay this lad hasn't broken the law yet but there's something up with him because he seemed to have popped out of nowhere and risen to fame in the post office like keep an eye on him you know and and we get like bits in that, like the the bits parts where like when he verbally spars with Satyrissa, it's clear that like Moist regards when he's dealing with the press and with her in particular because he's such a savvy reporter that he always has to be on his guard. And we get the feeling that like he knows Vimes doesn't uh, really trust him or or like him, but we don't get any sense of like the sword of Damocles hanging over his head about his shadowy past that multiple people in the city are you know wondering about this. And all it's going to take is someone like Cribbins to expose it and he could be in real trouble, you know, like the mm. the threat of Cribbins exposing it is, I suppose, kind of neutered or rendered a lot vaguer than it should be because we don't know who exactly is going to be 
either interested in that news of of, of a Moist's past or in a position to actually punish or harm Moist because of because of this news. Yeah, no, I do agree with you in that sense. And you are right, there are a lot of moments in this that um don't really get the space to breathe as they should. What really one thing that really struck me and this is something that I feel like shouldn't bother me as much, but when I was thinking about it, I, I think it kind of did, is that you could technically take the... You could, this doesn't necessarily have to be a Discworld novel, per se. There's very little about it that really screams Discworld, except for the actual style of writing, obviously. But, like, it's barely... it's With the exception of the golems, like, there's almost no fantasy elements in this whatsoever. Well, we have, uh, we have Professor Fleet as the ghost okay, yeah, that so lifts the- someone back up. But that, that, that kind of feels a, almost a little superfluous to the plot. Like, I know, like, ultimately he is there to translate the thing, but I felt like that's a role that could have been filled by anybody else. Now, I know I'm, I'm splitting hairs here now, but, like, so we have, like, the, the Unseen University aspect, which I personally feel was superfluous. I didn't really care for that bit at all. And the golems themselves, which I feel like you could have slotted into any other fantasy book. We have so, Igor. And and his his experiments on Ellswick when he's able to remove oh, yeah. the uh, the. Do you know? I'm just I'm just so used to the idea the of Igor's that I'm just like, oh yeah, yeah. That, that's just they're just part of the background now. So ultimately fulfilling their role. Also, it's just like, a small... this book trades a lot on Veterinary's reputation and and Veterinary's standing in a city, in a way that mm. like yeah, you theoretically could do that outside of Discworld just. I suppose you'd have to do more work then to establish this character of, well, it wouldn't be the patrician, but whoever the ruler is, and why they're so formidable that people are obsessed with them to the point of madness and so on and so forth, in a way that he doesn't have to do here because we're familiar with Veterinary from earlier Discworld books. That's true, but the plus side of that is I actually quite like the way uh, Veterinary is done in this book. Like we kind of, I feel like we explore his character a little bit more than we usually do. Um, like not since like the watch books has really gone into that much detail and I love like the way we kind of view him through Cosmo's really skewed uh, eyes which Cosmo I think is a great character I really like him and actually the idea of him being absolutely obsessed with veterinary and like it's kind of I wouldn't say it's a slow descent because it is pretty rapid but you don't see exactly how deranged he is at the beginning it's just kind of like you can tell immediately obviously that he is like you know entranced by veterinary and it just kind of descends pretty rapidly from there but it's a fun thing to watch happen particularly like the climax where we find like that the finger that uh he's so insistent on maintaining the same size that he's basically rotted off his own finger (laughs) uh which is such a horrific sounding like i think at one point even um moist rips the glove off him and i think terry pratchett describes it as a kind of a gloop sound when he takes it off which is just horrifying to even think of and the way that he ultimately is put into the um the insane asylum with all the other people who think they're veterinary which is such a very dark dark end for him like uh, it's bizarre and like he's going around saying like do they not know that I'm the real veterinary and all like the staff telling him that like, oh no, sir, we can't let them know that you're the real veterinary. So we let them all think that they're the real veterinary. It's all very good, very good. Yes. So it's, it's very dark, very grim, but very enjoyable. So one one of the highlights anyway of the book, I think is Cosmo as a character. Yeah. It's a weird one just because there's so many ups and downs in this book that like some of the ups are very good, but a problem with the aspects that I enjoy quite a lot of them do feel very repeated from going postal like the entire business of 
making the paper money and like trying it out on like uh, the people and like going out to the crowds and saying this is like how we're going to do things and like this is something we've seen before already and it, it's enjoyable but less admirable because it's already been done do you know yeah yeah absolutely like it does feel like a, a case of diminishing returns in in the way that it goes back to you've, you've got mice doing this similar things you've got a kind of similar milieu in the bank the bank is obviously less gone to seed than the post office in, in going postal but you've got this hidebound institution populated by these colorful characters who are sort of obsessive about various parts of how this institution runs whether it's hubert and the, the glooper uh, to, to kind of model economics or mr bent and the value of gold compared to um stanley and what's the other lad's name mr Grote. mr Grote, yeah in, in going postal and like there's certainly a lot to be mined in the stuff to do with the the value of money and and, and things like that but yeah again I, I i just feel like it's sort of there, there's too much to dedicate to one thing i think another thing that hurts it is moist doesn't really have an arc here like we have this mm. sense in going postal of you know he he begins or he's a con man and he's trying to escape from uh from veterinary and from this responsibility you know at the point where mr pump goes back to him and that conversation he has with mr pump about how his conning actually has hurt people and he's, he's sort of been lying to himself about being this you know harmless rogue and he's while still being a rogue and, and still relying on this, you know, his glib tongue and his ability to uh, make people believe in, in a value that isn't there, he he does sort of root himself into something realer and, and, and something that has value within that community. And we don't really get that sense uh, here at all. I particularly didn't like the, the bit at the end when he's in the dock in the court and he's contrasting himself with the lavishes and how like you know their family has like a lot of these old money families you go back far enough you find that their you know their family used to be slavers and all sorts of uh, horrible things like that and he's contrasting himself saying oh well i might have defrauded banks but they were practically asking for it and i never hurt anyone and i thought like well like okay on the one hand yeah there is a you know a clear difference between a say one-off small-time con artist like him who is punished by the law and big criminals like the lavishes who become so inwoven in the fabric of society that they are then above the law to a certain extent despite having hurt more people than he has like there, there's a point there you know of like who who is the law protecting who is it actually punishing but you know why is he worse just because he's arrested but i'm also thinking yeah but you learned in the last book that what you were doing did hurt some people and maybe it didn't mm. hurt as many people that's the, the entire but the entire arc with um spike is basically there to highlight that yeah, so yeah yeah exactly and um the fact that she's gone for a, a fair bit here and then when she comes back it's just like trading a few like barbs and witticisms but there's no real you know they're just trying to find pursue the the, the mystery of the the golems and so on so uh, it got me thinking i was thinking well like it's not as if moist is the first character he's returned to or the first character he's returned to in a similar style of of narrative right like you know the up until jingo which in, in many ways is one of the, the it's still a very good book but when he makes one of the less successful watch books but up until that point you have vimes and the rest of the watch doing similar things like you have this mystery narrative and i was thinking to myself i was like what so what is it with them that he was able to go back to Vimes or go back to Granny, go back to Death and Susan and like revisit these general shapes of plots and ideas with these characters? 
having taken them on a journey before, he can take them on another journey and still make it satisfying in a way that it isn't happening here. Like Moist is Moist for the, the novelty doesn't it doesn't really change. So I, I don't know, is your memory any fresher on those things? Could like as to what what um... the big difference is there? Well, initially when I was doing the comparison, I mean, obviously that is the more logical comparison to make, but I was thinking back to Lords and Ladies and Carpe Jugalum, and that kind of had a very similar trajectory like uh, there that the, the this pair of books has as well, in that, you know, Carpe Jugalum took a very, very similar story, very, very similar, and it wasn't successful because of that. So, um, yeah, and this one, it kind of follows the same track. But yeah, going back to um, the likes of Men at Arms and... Uh, feet of clay um is there another one as well before jingo or is that it yeah guards guards the, the first one. guards guards yeah as well um so i think with that one i mean with men at arms i think it's just it feels very much like the ante is being upped you know that's like guards guards was very much like our introduction and that was fine that was completely basically completely original and then men at arms it was like okay now the thing is growing and it was a completely different theme Whereas with this one, the theme is very similar. I mean, like these these are kind. I think these are referenced as like the industrialized uh, ones, aren't they? Like the industrial era of Discworld novels, where like everything is kind of slowly becoming more uh, like modern times. Like you know, um, so it's kind of following on a very similar track. Like everything is about like getting the city working, and that's kind of the ultimate goal. And I think it's maybe it's just because we know that's the case. We know this is what it's building towards. It's all about making the city like a working, functioning machine, more akin to like, say modern day, like London or like New York or wherever, anywhere like that. And maybe because we know that's the goal, this just seems kind of boring. And like, I mean, I'm a little hesitant mm. to say that because like there are parts of the book that are really good, but I do feel like it's just a little bit lackluster for and it might just be because of that because i know this is where it's going and i'm like i don't think it's going to surprise me very much i know i've read it before but i feel like this might have been the case even when i read it the first time like it's still got like yeah. the punchy characters and like quirky little bits but they're just they're just kind of dressing on like what's supposed to be the the main meal that is like the actual narrative and that just that lacks a little bit yeah, yeah. Um, I, I like I can't quite put my finger on what it is. Well, because we, we joked, I remember with I think it was Fida Clay, which is a book we loved. That it's it's the third time you have this idea of oh someone is trying to get rid of the patrician and reinstall the king, and there's a murder mystery. But yet he was able to do that and still make it seem refreshing and interesting and so on. I mean, I suppose in in the other ones he has richer supporting cast to draw from. Like that, even broadly, you'd say, okay, like Vimes is the main character in the Watch Books and Granny is the main character in the Witch Books. But you have a really rich supporting cast um, in, in, in Nanny and, and McGrath, and uh, to a lesser extent, people like, uh, you know, Varence and, and the extended Og family in, in the, the Witch's Books. And in the Watch Books, you have Carrot and Angua and Detritus and, and Cheery and all of these others. So he he can use them in different ways in, in um in those books, whereas here you have Moist and, and Adora, I suppose, are the main recurring characters. Like Stanley pops up once or twice, but he, you know, he's, he's like he's more connected to the post office, which Moist has been removed from in this book. 
and then the rest of the, the guest characters as it were for this book are just slotted into roles that we've previously seen played out you know whether it's mr bent as the kind of obsessive stalwart of the institution like mr Grove. Cosmo is the villain like Richard Gilt although as you said I think Cosmo is one of the better parts of it because he's a very different figure than, than Richard Gilt in, in a lot of ways it feels it feels very churlish to be complaining 30 odd books in when you're still getting quality books of like oh he's doing this thing again you know it's like a certain amount of repetition is inevitable but there's something about this one that felt a bit more it was like tired and, and unnecessary in a case of diminishing returns than him revisiting ideas in, in other books did yeah, I mean, like, I made a comparison, like, between this and uh, the Tiffany Aching books, right? So we're we're only in the second book in the Moist Von Lipwig uh, series, and already it's feeling very old. Um, whereas, like, Tiffany Aching books, we were three books in, and whereas we didn't like the first one so much, the second and third one managed to just up the ante, like, twice, you know? So, and, like, again, there's a lot of similar characters, it's a similar kind of vibe, but, like, it manages to keep things very very varied i think just so much of it boils down to this is just kind of a very very samey book like it's i think i i suspect that's what it boils down to this is just a very very samey book with any interesting characters that are there are filling archetypes and roles that we've seen like that we saw in going postal and it's almost identical arc like i i remember thinking like the only thing i could remember about making money before I read it the second time was that bit where he's going out to you like he print he prints the money and he goes out to practice with it and I remember thinking mm-hmm. like hang on was that going post and like it was just it was one of those ones that like it's it felt like it was coming from going postal like they're almost well, not interchangeable but well, maybe interchangeable actually <laughs> like it just feels so similar yeah, I mean, thinking about it, one one thing we highlighted as a big point in the in the Tiffany series' favor in in the last episode on on Wintersmith was that they're very character driven, and you really see Tiffany grow. You know, obviously, there's certain advantages there, and that Tiffany is a younger character who's aging as we go along, so it it sort of makes it. Well, look, you should never stop learning throughout your life, whether you are a real person or a fictional character. But it makes sense that she we can you know more directly and vividly see her change and and learn new things and have ideas challenged and so on yeah it's just something unsatisfying about the fact that that moist really doesn't hear he just skits around the the sides of plays around in this familiar milieu with familiar results i think what hurts the most is that i really like the themes that they're exploring and like the idea of the value of money and like how do we decide the value of money i think that's like a really if you'll pardon the pun, a rich uh, like vein to tap into. It's, like it's really a really interesting idea, and not necessarily like explored in a bad way. Like I do like how there's a couple of moments where like there's these animated discussions on like why is gold like you know better? Why who decides it? We only all agree that gold is good. Like gold is only valuable because we all agree it's good. And like. The discussion at the end in the the committee where they're like basically saying what should we do with all the golems and that kind of highlights like the people who attribute worth towards you know things that are actually valuable as in i.e like people versus the people who are like stuck in the traditional way of thinking that like no we need to just attribute to like gold 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 it's all about gold terry pratchett like he does explore that in interesting ways but 
it just it completely falls down because well not completely it falls down a little just because all the reasons we've mentioned before samey it's and it's repetitive and even though that he's exploring those things in slightly different ways the narrative beats are the same and that kind of causes us to lose interest a little bit would that be accurate for you yeah actually when you're saying it it puts you in mind of um do you remember the film cowboys versus aliens oh god yeah 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 and halfway through the film it's established that the aliens motive is that they want gold as well and uh, harrison ford says what are they wanting for buying things (laughs) 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 and he's just so incredulous and furious over this like the ludicrousness of these aliens want the gold but i I, I just kind of touches on a similar idea that like we're just attracted to this this useless metal as a symbol of value I, I think part of it too is you have this great part where Moise is sitting down and thinking to himself after he's had this interview with Satyrissa and he's saying how like oh like gold is worthless on a desert island Ankh-Morpork is in a desert island though and he's thinking to himself like okay what is it about value what do, like I had an idea there and he talks about the value being the city and the idea of like like gold's only valuable within the context of a city that recognizes or money really is only valuable within the context of the city that recognizes its value and then allows you to trade on that value for all the services and all the kind of items and so on that you can purchase within that city. And I feel like, again, the the idea of concepts here not having room to breathe. In Gung Postal, we really see how both the clacks and then later the post office, the revitalized post office under Moist, affects the lives of people within Ankh-Morpork you know we get all these little vignettes whether it's like the the, the old lad who finally gets the letter from his uh, lost mm. love and, and they end up marrying or you know uh, people using the stamps as money and you get the sense of how the city's transforming whereas here you do have that part where after Harry King has invested money all these people who had previously stored their money in socks are investing it in the bank we don't really get any sense of what that does, like how that transforms their, their lives at all mm. in any way, you know? And it, then it creates this problem too when you have, like we, we have a very clear picture in, uh, like Gung Postal is quite a complicated book in a lot of ways, but to boil it down, you do have a clear opposition about the very cutthroat, rootless way in which the Grand Trunk runs to clacks that involves, you know, uh, basically endangering the workers and kind of in- inconveniencing and not really caring about the, the, the customers who actually use the service compared to the more personal uh, touch moist springs to, to the post office. And here we were meant to have this contrast between the lavishes uh, having like the, the bank as their personal fiefdom and moist running it for public good. And while obviously in a, in a very clear sense, I mean, when I put it in those terms, you could see what the difference is you know it, it sounds better to any of us that a bank should be run for the public good rather than as the plating of of you know a few rich vested interests but we don't really see how that plays out you know what i mean like in, in the same mm. way that like we see how the the way in which the grand trunk has cut corners to increase profits is like actively killing people in in, in some ways like like a adora bell's brother and, and just generally inconveniencing and, and sort of being high-handed uh, and, and careless about the, the city in, in others whereas here we don't know like what moist says that you know normal people didn't use the bank before and, and they've stored their money in their socks and we don't really get like oh like why is that the case and what were they losing by you know not not being able to use the bank yeah and i i don't know we could have done with just more room for that to breathe of 
like maybe comedic scenes with the likes of Mr. Bent and his associates having to feel like the equivalent of, of like your your average, you know, Joe just coming up and asking for a loan to like fix his toilet or asking for, for a loan for a holiday or something, you know, and, and they're used to dealing in high finance and the likes of Cosmo coming in to, you know, just scoop up a load of the money so he can whatever, build a new mansion or something like that. And they're so disgusted by this this uh the, the, this contrast and yet the, the people still clearly are are gaining from it and so on we don't really get any of that so it's kind of this idea of value and the city ultimately being what underpins the value of money is left just hanging there in the air we don't see how that works in practice i mean when we think about it, it is it's, it's an idea that makes sense but it just would have been more satisfying and and, and was richer to see that idea actually illustrated mm, yeah no i know what you mean and it's again it kind of i feel like it's falling a little bit into the trap of retracing the steps of going postal because whereas that book worked because we'd heard nothing about the post office up, up until this point and then we just realized it's just falling into disarray and nobody ever uses it and they're just kind of like the post office is a joke nobody uses it and then he jump starts it again and suddenly it becomes a fad everyone jumps on it and then suddenly it's an intricate part of the city the bank feels very very similar to that when it shouldn't so the idea at the start of the bank is that some people do still use the bank because they must because it's still a functioning institute you know and like people are still coming in like making money and like using it to pay themselves etc etc but yeah as you say like you don't get any sort of sense of like how it affects the city and when it when he basically starts kickstarts it up again and saying like everybody should join and if you do i'll give you like a five dollar bill for free or something like that and it just it follows the same beats once again it seems like the bank is like the post office like oh it's a fad well, let's jump in and give it a go as opposed to like how is this actually going to affect the lives of people like you know it's 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 a sequel basically people were like oh my god this was so much fun the first time let's see how it goes this time yeah there's a lot of things here that like i'm just it annoys me because, like, when I was writing down, like, all the things that I liked about it, I was like, oh, yeah, I like this, I like this now. But as you said, it's it's a bit distracting that, like, there's so much going on that Cosmo is a good example of this. So I really like Cosmo as a character, but he's too distracting from the main plot. Partly because it isn't it isn't clear what his uh, his plot is, you know. Yeah, like, I mean, he's he's not an obvious, like, uh, oppressor or aggressor in any way. Like, he's an interesting character, but he's just, he just, there's so many moments of just his character development and it takes away from the main story, you know? So, like, n nearly everything I feel in Making Money has this weird dichotomy of, like, it's interesting, but it does this as well and it kind of fucks things up, you know? So, it's like, there's a lot of good in here, but, like, they're all thrown off out of whack because of like how they affect everything else this weird ripple effect it has in the entire story yeah it feels like this is a book that you could potentially describe to someone like just sketch out and and they think oh that sounds great you know <laughs> like mm, yeah. particularly if, it was, if if you got an advanced copy of this before it came out and you were telling another Discworld fan it's like oh in the next book there's this lad who's obsessed with veterinary and and you know they're like you've got the bank and this idea of value and everything oh amazing you know and it just mm somewhere falls down in the execution i think with, with cosmo too as much as i like him what what sort of hurts it is early on we had that scene with him and heretofore about 
where he, he's getting is it, is it like the boots or no it's, it's veterinary's hat he's already got him the boots his kind of little skull cap and heretofore thinks that Cosmo is a really sharp guy but when it comes to veterinary it's just this blind spot that makes him kind of childish and obsessive and we sort of see that in the scene when he's he's got moist in his carriage and he manages to kind of intimidate and, and threaten Moist, and as much as like Moist is quite a sharp guy, but the point, you know, where he says, oh, my regards to your young lady, and Moist sort of starkly says, oh, you might as well said I know where you live, but he is kind of shook. He's thinking, oh, this mm. lad means business. And, and it briefly falls apart when uh, Cosmo tries to ape veterinary's eyebrow movements. Yeah. And Moist is <laughs> thinking, well, what's wrong with your face? So we have this nice little scene there where it's like, oh, this guy clearly is a threat, but he's also kind of goofy and having this obsession. And it's an obsession that, again, actually makes a strength of, of this book being 30-odd books into this world, where, like, the reader is kind of obsessed with veterinary like that. Mm, At this point, yeah, it makes yeah. perfect sense to us that he would command this this level of, of fascination within the, the world. But then as the book goes on, we just get more and more of the veterinary obsession. And while it is entertaining, you all, it also gives the impression that Cosmos just is neurotic buffoon you know rather than someone who is a bit of a neurotic buffoon on one score but also poses a threat and then i think what hurts that too is again going back to the idea of of like cribbins blackmailing moist and um there being no real i suppose stakes of moist being exposed is we're not really sure what what cosmo's plan is like the part where you know he talks to mr bent and then mr bent ends up going missing like he doesn't he his conversation with Mr. Bent is more like, oh, you know, we we have the same interests. Like, we're we're the ones. We want the bank back in the good old days. Not this Von Lipwig lad. He's just a chancer. Like, he doesn't tell Mr. Bent to go missing. So while that Mr. Bent does go missing, it has a breakdown on the back of that conversation. We don't get the impression that that's what Cosmo planned. Like, you know, oh, I'll go in and rattle Bent. And then when Bent leaves the bank will collapse and this will come down around moist ears. So while we see him sort of trying to take advantage of that, you know, well, like when I, I do like that scene when he orders Vimes to arrest yes. <laughs> Moist and, and Moist is kind of banking on the fact of like, well, Vimes doesn't like me, but he definitely doesn't like being ordered around by this guy. <laughs> but we, we sort of get the sense then that he's more just pouncing on this opportunity rather than it being something that he planned. Um, yeah. So then when, when Moist's in the dock and he sees Cosmo and Cribbins and you're like, what is their plan at this point? Is Cribbins going to stand up and say, that man is Albert Spangler? And Cosmo's like, oh, look, you know, <laughs> he's right, guards, quick, arrest him. Yeah, so it just makes his threats seem more nebulous, I suppose. Um, and, and while his, like, like I really like his descent into kind of veterinary team madness, and it sort of reminded me of um, the, what's his name, the, the, the Count, the Baron in um, Weird Sisters. Oh but, um, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. The, the way he's racked, racked with guilt and descent. Yes, Selma. He's racked with guilt and and descends into madness. But it's a bit more, slightly more consistently done in that I feel like, if I remember correctly, in Weird Sisters, there were points where it felt like he just sort of bounced back into kind of seeming like a sane and formidable villain because the plot required him to, and then collapsed back into madness later. Mm. Whereas Cosmo, there's definitely a sense of a steady descent into him getting worse and worse and while that's entertaining it does detract from the role he could be serving within the book as as an antagonist and as something that lends it a sense of stakes and, and lends it a sense of uh, consequence i suppose hmm. well to play devil's advocate for a second here right now i know um 
we we've often talked before about how difficult uh how much difficulty terry pratchett tends to have with making his antagonists like function how they're usually like very very formidable or uh interesting or whatever in the beginning of the book but they tend to just kind of descend into like a very very simple foil for the heroes like at the end the our protagonist usually has to overcome like some kind of ideological uh, obstacle then the actual physical obstacle i.e the antagonist is very easy to topple once they've done that and that was a problem that like terry pratchett's always had Poss- just throwing the possibility out there maybe in this book he's trying to do something a little bit different now i don't think he succeeds in this but just kind of throw it out there rather than having like one simple antagonist he's just kind of throwing it into like throwing it out into the world so so like you know uh, moist isn't so much going up against cosmo but going up against like the difficulty of making a bank work so like while it is obvious that cosmo is or he seems to be fulfilling the role of the primary antagonist. He also has to deal with um, his sister, Pucci, uh, or mm-hmm. Pussy, or whatever her name is. And what's his name? Cri- uh, Cribbins? Cribbins. And I think, well, I mean, I mean, that's pretty much it. But, like, it's it's not exactly a multitude. And obviously, Pucci is more of a, like, because she's the sister of uh, Cosmo and more of a henchman than anything else. That's kind of difficult. And again... Cribbins works for Cosmo in the end so again it's very hard to make that argument but it's one possibility I don't think it's a successful endeavor that he does here but it might be something that he was trying to do just didn't really pull off yeah I mean that's fair I just suppose that I think if if you were trying to do that Cosmo could more effectively represent part of the problems of running a bank like i the vested interests that don't want to mm. uh, that oppose you uh, moist changing how, how, how the bank runs and in a way that he does in a lot of ways but it's just kind of not very satisfyingly executed like just throughout it again there's just the, the stakes are very vague like we have that great opening scene of moist breaking into the post office but we don't know it's him at first and and we get the sense that he, like King Louis in the Jungle Book, has reached the top and had to stop, and that's what's bothering him. Uh, <laughs> like in that he's kind of got the post office ticking over and is sort of bored to the point of you know almost madness by this. And and that's a great setup initially that gives him some kind of motivation to approach this new challenge in, in the bank, albeit it ends up sort of trust into him. But then it it does sort of sum up that like we have this scene where he tries to break in, gets caught, is able to talk his way out of it. Um, well, he, he sort of he almost gets caught. You know, he ends up in a room, and it, the, one of the guards suspects it's it's him, and the others think this is ridiculous. And then later we have the scene where again on this, what, what would you call it? Like like this adrenaline crisis he's having. He's having essentially where where he's he's craving excitement that he he's going into the bank and he tries to kind of sneak in even though he doesn't have to. But we have this whole scene of him kind of sneaking around, you know, hiding behind the flower pots and so on. But he's thinking to himself that, like, if he gets caught, he can just talk his way out of it because, you know, he is, like, he has a position in the bank. So, so there, like, we have this lengthy scene of him sneaking around with, like, no real stakes. And again, True. we have, to, we have the, the shadow of his past hanging over him in Cribbins, but there's no real stakes because we don't know who Cribbins could tell that would be either interested in this news or in a position to use it up until Cribbins meets up with Cosmo, which is quite late on. And then even at that point, it's kind of unclear what they plan to do with this information. Uh, And then we have him 
being afraid of veterinary, but we know veterinary too well to know that he's actually going to do anything to Moist. Like the part when he, he breaks Ellswick out of the jail and then he um he meets veterinary and he's afraid veterinary knows but again, we we know veterinary isn't going to punish him, and and then he knows he he figures out that oh, Ellswick is too useful. Veterinary would have offered him an angel like he offered me, you know. So like like even he realizes oh, actually I'm I'm not in any danger of veterinary you know killing me or, or locking me up for for freeing this prisoner. So there's just a lot of parts throughout the book where the the danger or the the sense of consequences that Moist is going to have to face if stuff goes wrong is neutered and it's only yeah. right at the end when he gets arrested for the theft of the gold that that manifests itself in some significant way the thing about that is it isn't so much that it happens right at the end is that it doesn't really feel like it's being built towards throughout the book you know it isn't the sense of like oh this has been hanging over his head the whole time and it finally happened it just happens I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Actually, what might be the central problem? Because I realize now I'm thinking like there's very few moments like where Moist is really in any kind of position of difficulty. And even if you were to look at it in like the traditional three act structure or like you know hero's journey sort of thing, usually in almost every single novel there's that moment in the middle where like the hero has this like momentary triumph before he has to deal with yet another difficulty. And in my head I was trying to think like where is that in this book? And I think it's that point where um, the crowds are outside the bank and they're demanding to like open. Uh, some are demanding, most of them are demanding to open accounts, whereas one or two, a very small amount, are looking to close their accounts. And he goes out basically onto the balcony to explain, like, this is the new paper money I'm planning on bringing in. And like the lavishes are there trying to discredit him, saying like, no, it's rubbish. He's trying to like you know take your gold and like you know he's going to bring the entire bank down, like crashing down. And it's a, as you said, it's a very toothless sort of like scene where like um, you're supposed to be feeling like, oh my god, this is like the big climax, the midpoint climax that it's building towards, and like there's no no real danger there. Like he's already won before that scene's even started because like he already knows everybody, loads of people out there are looking to open accounts. But it, it's got that that bit of pacing that is the point where we're supposed to be feeling like, oh my god, he's he's won, yeah. But instead, it's mm-hmm. just like, yeah, of course he's won. It's fine. Like. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, too, going back to that scene, there's just, like, a few too many scenes in this book where someone, usually moist occasionally, it's like veterinary or someone else, manages to convert a would-be baying mob into an appreciative audience. Mm. You know, where, where where they're in front of a crowd, and, and as you said, there's a sense of uncertainty of, of what the crowd's going to do, and then they start throwing out the witty lines, and, and it gets a laugh, and they know they've got the crowd behind them. And... I feel like like those scenes are kind of um, key set pieces of the Moist books, even mm. having only read two of them, because his whole thing is his ability to trade on people's perceptions and, and their quest for a good story by weaving a good story in front of them. Mm. But there's just a few too many of them here, so it just starts to feel very self-satisfied. It's kind of like... Yeah. Like, like like he wants a laugh track in the book or something so that like whenever yeah. <laughs> Moist says a good line we can be told people people were there and and they laughed at it and that combined with what I was saying earlier about the fact that you don't see how the city is actually being affected really by the the, the money the money in the way that you do and in, in going postal means that it makes Hank Morford feel less a lived in city and more just like a city populated by a few main characters and a load of NPCs. 
<laughs> you know, like, like Moist and Veterinary and that are the main characters and the rest of them are the NPCs that are just going to, you know, like cheer them on or boo them This man on. are sick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think you're right there now. Like, um, the, like, the one thing I thought that I was going to enjoy in this and I'm not really sure how I felt about it was... I remember we talked about this during uh, Going Postal, like how the relationship between Moist and uh, Spike was going to develop at least. And in some ways, it's, it's actually, it's a very similar vibe because like in some ways I quite like it. They function very well as a couple in that like neither is like just leaning on the other or just like kind of a side. You know, she is neither just his like fiance and he is not just her fiance. Like, you know, they both have sort of different agendas, but they weave together and they work together well. And I like that. But there's no sense of like, oh, like, I mean, like, how are they going to deal with this obstacle in a relationship? Or like, uh, you know, is there any danger this might fall apart? Or like, is there anything exciting here? And there isn't really like it's 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 a good relationship. And that's something i guess like it's it's great that the uh terry pratchett has managed to portray a really health what seems like a really healthy relationship albeit one where uh moist von lipwig likes to scale buildings when she's not around that's a one side thing to it but otherwise like a very seems like a very healthy relationship it's just that again there's not much to it it's healthy and it's well represented but there's not much to it do you know what i mean yeah, it's funny. I remember with um with going postal, like I think I I was actually re-listening back to that um that episode, trying to when I was trying to make sense of why I was left cold by this one compared to going postal, and and I think myself, yourself, and Rose had the feeling that we really liked the two of them as characters, but weren't so convinced by their relationship. And again, as you're saying, we're kind of like, oh well, you know, let's see where it goes. And we had a, a an email from a listener who was a bit iffy on the relationship, but she also asked us whether whether it could be compared to Carrot and Angua. And I, I didn't quite feel it could, but I think what the similarity here is that you have, in Carrot and Angua, like the tension for a lot of it is this idea of Angua wondering, like, Carrot loves me, but he kind of loves everyone. So what's special about our relationship? Is he, like, does he love his job and the city and that more? Um, you know, among other things, but but that's a big aspect of it. And then ultimately you have in the fifth elephant, it's kind of, he sort of definitively proves that, that their relationship is the most important thing to him. Here you have two people who, they're both kind of in the carrot situation. Like, like they both have their own obsessive interests, which is great. Like it allows them both to flourish as, as people. And I like that part where Moist is kind of like... Um, pettily jealous of how interested she is in in the oh, you know yeah. in the golems and you know when she gets back yes. and immediately she's like come on we gotta go to university but the book seems to kind of be aware of like you know it, it's not taking her to task of like oh yeah look at this like horrible uh ungrateful girlfriend it's sort of pointing out like that that he's kind of being petty but in a very human in a very understandable way like in a way i'm sure anyone listening to this in a relationship now or who has been in one understands where you you have that feeling that your significant other is more interested in something than they are in you and a lot of the time you can appreciate that but occasionally it sort of grates and um, mm. so so like i like that and i like the, the way it's treated as this like just flaw but an understandable flaw but what it means is that we don't have that tension that we have with carrot nangua of like they have to, and to a certain extent, we have it with Vimes and Sybil too, of like, okay, you're obsessed with your job and I love that about you, but we, we need to find a balance here. 
like you've got the two of them or she's obsessed with with her golem uh, liberation movement that he's kind of obs- sort of obsessive with whatever adrenaline pumping activities in at the moment whether it's the bank or the post office and and that kind of inconvenience system and that like I, I i i sort of like that the pace of when she gets back and they're just desperately trying to settle down and and have a you know like have, have a dinner and talk to one another but there's so much going on that they can't but it sort of means there's no you know if, if they're both like that there isn't any sense that they're kind of that they're struggling to reconcile their relationship with their activities as as uh you know as as people so in a way that like he doesn't have an arc in this book their relationship doesn't really have like like an arc here it isn't sort of challenged in any significant way or changed in any significant way yeah i mean the thing with that relationship though it's um like it's 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 uneventful and like it doesn't really cause an awful lot of excitement um in the book which is a bit of a problem but i do think it is important to have the occasional relationship where it isn't in some kind of turmoil or state of reconciliation or um you know just any kind of obstacles it's nice to have like a healthy relationship in there and i do think that the moments where moist and um spike are just you know have trying to have dinner together as disgusting as it might be or trying to negotiate with the um not necromancers i think those moments are really really enjoyable so i have less i have less of an issue with that i think their relationship even though it's not particularly strong i do i I don't think I'd take it out either. I think I'm happy with it as it is. I take much more issue with just the fact that Moist doesn't have an arc and that there's so much crammed in here. It, it's weird to say that, that there's like, there, he doesn't really have an arc and also there are so many things vying for our attention at the same time that like it keeps distracting from everything else. Like um, the whole thing with the glooper felt like it was going to be an awful lot more important than it mm. actually was. The only thing that really happens, like the only thing that we really get out of that is when Hubert bursts into the uh, the committee meeting to tell them that they can't use the golems as a workforce because that would bankrupt the city. And also at the very end, he uses the glooper to basically retroactively put the gold back into the vault. It's a little unclear. I'm, I wasn't really certain how exactly that worked. That was a little confusing to me. Did you did you have any clarity on that? He just moved some vials around and it basically it just seemed like all the gold magically shot back into the vault. And how that happened was very unclear to me. Do you have any clarity on that? Yeah, I, I think, again, it's it's an element left untapped. Like, there's a lot with, with Hubert and that whole, his little milieu under the bank that I like. I like the idea that he's essentially the only economist and he's presented as a mad scientist. Yeah, um, with an ego and everything. I love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, because it's, it's always just something that, like that I think, I'm, perhaps you have listeners who are like, do deal in finance or, or economics who roll their eyes at this, but I, I think for like people outside of that world, it can just seem baffling that it's presented to us as if it's like, as if it's wholly, completely like unchangeable and natural and unalterable, you know, like stuff like financial crashes, are talked about like natural disasters like they just kind of happen you know and <laughs> and then we've got to deal with them rather than like this is a system we invented so yeah. it's it's kind of it's 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 fun that you have then like like an economist being treated rather than as a respectable figure he's kind of treated as this like mad scientist eccentric but the glooper um which is apparently modeled on, on a real thing oh yeah yeah he has an author's note at the start and uh, it's, it's in a museum somewhere to attempt to build an early economic computer but I think it's another untapped element where you have this, I mean, throughout all of the disc world, you've had this idea of belief influencing reality, you know, like most probably clearly seen with the disc mm. world gods who, who 
are uh, given life by belief. And and Moist plays a lot on that with the way he sort of sells people these stories to, to tap into and so on. The glooper kind of plays on this sort of occult thing, um, like part occult, part postmodernism of, of the the representation becoming the reality. Like Hubert introduces it to Moist as being a, you know, an economic model where you, you have all these tubes representing different sections of the economy and the water represents the money and you can kind of see what would happen if, if you made certain economic decisions. But then it becomes, so it's a representation of the economy that then becomes the real economy through the power of, of belief. And there's something similar with uh, Cosmo's obsession with becoming veterinary, where he, like, this idea that if he collects all of these items of veterinary, veterinary will lose his sense of self, and Cosmo will not just become like veterinary and being the patrician and being clever and formidable and so on, he will be veterinary. And I, I just feel like it isn't, I don't know, it isn't um, teased out enough. Like, obviously, that belief of Cosmos is, it, it, laid on, he starts thinking about it in those explicit terms, and it's clear by then it's an indication of how mad he's getting. But mm. most madness, or certainly most madness in a way that it gets depicted in fiction, um, comes from this, like, maybe germ of reality that gets distorted. So, like, Cosmo does go on a descent throughout the novel. While he begins as being quite silly and, and, and neurotic with his veterinary obsession, he is sane at that point but he clearly has some idea when he's saying of like what the point of collecting all this veterinary stuff is and i think if you mm, had him yeah. like you know he's read some book on the occult of the the whole as above so below idea of representation becoming reality perception becoming reality and that that's what he's going for it, like if you had him go into that more it, it would just sort of, i suppose give us the kind of ideological underpinning that we would then have with, with with the glooper and that ties in broadly with the broader themes of the book of the difference between actual value versus perceived value what's what's the the marxist term is um like a oh, it, it's i'm like the, the value at which you sell something versus the value at which you uh the value of, of like it actually costs to to make exchange was exchange value versus labor value and um, Anyway, it's it's like essentially the the value that it actually costs to make something in terms of time and, and resources versus the value it's sold for, you know, in, in the, the commercial world because maybe it's perceived as, as being valuable. That whole argument and idea is very much tied up with, with economics and, and what this book is going into. But I don't know, it isn't, I suppose it isn't expressed in a coherent enough fashion that stuff like the glooper and stuff like cosmos obsession which you, you you can see how they relate to this idea but you can't see what joins them up if you follow me yeah and you could also argue that the same is true of uh, gladys who now believes that she or it is a female golem now at this point and this is all kind of due to like the magazines that she's constantly reading which is basically altering her perception on what she is as like a thing and there's a few moments where uh you know adora will say like who's to say she's not or or someone said i don't think it's her actually someone says who's to say it's not a she like you know there was no gender attached to golems whatsoever beforehand we always just assumed it was he and now ironically here in a book that came out like in the early noughties they were like yep this is where like you know feminism's coming in so yes so i was like well 
wasn't that wasn't when feminism came in. That was a little bit beforehand. But you know, um, it's 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 good here that like uh, he's being uh, Terry Pratchett's trying to be a bit more progressive, and therefore, and he's also feeding that into this argument that like also feeds into Cosmo and the perception of value and, and money and like what links the two, etc., etc. So, but as you said, it's just I feel like he's he's trying to make too many examples here and uh because our attention is being drawn like to all these different examples it's it's kind of a similar problem to like the narrative as a whole we just keep we keep getting our attention drawn to different places too much is going on so it's very hard to link any of them together or see see the bigger picture because like we're constantly being dragged from one place to another I also, I was looking at, sorry, I was looking at my book there and I was looking back at the Cabinet of Curiosity again, trying to figure out. I'm wondering, do you think that's supposed to represent the internet by any chance? Uh, perhaps, yeah, I suppose it could. In so the like, he seems to suggest that like all the inform- yeah, having all the information. He says something about like, can I take, or when uh, Spike says, can I take this uh, leg away from the cabinet? And she was like, no, you can't do that because if you take it away for more than three minutes... I think it snaps out of existence or something like that. And that would be like kind of familiar to like walking away from a Wi-Fi spot or something. Yeah, that'd be that'd be that'd be around around that point. Yeah. So like maybe going offline. Yeah, it's true. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, it could be. I mean, perhaps it was something where further down the line he was thinking of, you know, um, building a book around that, like of the, the, you know, the Ankh-Morp work or the, the Discworld internet. But yeah, it's, yeah, possibly. yeah it, it just feels in general like you've got, a lot of these ideas that aren't quite executed to their their fullest or joined up properly like even cosmo having some sort of coherent idea behind this uh walk a mile in a man's shoes becoming veterinary that way would be a nice parallel with might's told you've got to sell the sizzle to sell the steak approach to uh two things where, where he building institutions that are going to help the city materially but to do so he has to rely on just on, on um trading on people's perceptions of them and, and stuff that's wholly wholly immaterial and, and in people's heads and so on and and then later with that idea of how fragile the bank is that once mr bent is gone all of the confidence in the bank is gone and that will just collapse for for lack of confidence but that's also tied up with the reality of like mr bent physically having the keys to certain places in the bank that no one else has so he's both like a kind of physical necessity to running the bank but he's also crucial to the perception of it being run we're probably coming across as if we're being very harsh on this book and i i should qualify that like a lot of what i'm saying here in these ideas not being given room to breathe or not being quite teased out to a wholly satisfying extent they're still really interesting ideas and i'm still really glad to have have Mm. read a book that that brings them up it's just ultimately frustrating as i mentioned when you have that experience of or at least i did 100 pages in thinking oh i can't wait to see where this goes like there's there's so many interesting Mm. ideas presented here and then they don't end up teased out to the fullest one of those what did you think of the scene where igor takes the i mean what would you call it like like the bad memories the demons oh, out of elswick's head yeah. and puts them in the turnip and then as a consequence he's a terrible artist yeah so that um yeah i have to say i i it's it's another case of I felt I wish it had been teased out a bit more. Um, it seems to be resolved very quickly, but it's a great idea, and I like the way that it was done. I, 
I wish it had gone on a bit longer. So, um, yeah, essentially, he's kind of suggesting this idea that, like, you know, whatever sadnesses or traumas that, like, are going on in someone's head that might, like, really um, affect, like... In this case, like, your creative output. Like, I, I read it purely as, like, in terms of something like artistry or, like, you know, uh, creative types, like, and how, like, their work is affected by, like, their own experiences and that sort of thing. And, yeah, quite often you see this, like, dilemma where people are like, oh, I wish I could go back and change this and this and this. But you'll hear time and time again, but this is what made you who you are now. And to see that, like, enacted in a literal sense where it's like, oh, we're just going to take all your sadness away and put it into a potato. And then suddenly, like, you just can't draw at all. I like the idea. It's, it, w- it would have benefited from more time, I think. But we, it, it would have it been better to have that idea in a different book and given more time to breathe. Because it couldn't be given any more space to breathe here. Because if it had, it would have distracted even more from the general plot. And that's the last thing this book needs. But by the same token, I think it's a really interesting idea that I would have loved to see teased out a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. There, there's just so much to it, and and I do enjoy that scene for what's worth. I enjoy the, the use of Igor here in general, where he's he's uh, sort of savvy, but clearly has a I suppose it, it's a pejorative term, but a kind of twisted view of the world that that skews yeah, yeah. how he how he uses that that savviness and that skill. But I mean, there's so much going on in this part. Like, there's the idea of someone's trauma and their their ailments their demons being a fundamental part of who they are and you know whether it's a good thing to remove that uh it put me in mind of there's there's a play by brian friel called molly sweeney about a a, a woman who's been blind or almost her whole life and then she gets uh, like a, like a disgraced doctor is able to do this experimental procedure that cures her of the blindness but then it starts to return and the whole thing, it's it's told in, like, monologues between her, her husband, and the doctor. And, and this whole idea of, like, what she is gaining and what she is losing by losing her sight initially and then by gaining her sight as it gets back. And I suppose it's, it's been a few years since I've seen it, but her sort of seeing it as this, this kind of pressure of people thinking, you're cured now, you know, like, like you're much better. You must be so grateful and, uh, like, have so many more opportunities because this this uh, thing has gone, and this thing that has been such a fundamental part of our life and our existence up, up until now, and so there's so much there with this idea of Moist and, and Igor arguing of like essentially whether it's ethical to either remove that, uh, you know, it's very ambiguous as to what Ellswick's kind of mental condition or mental ailments, trauma, bad memories are. But, but the ethics of removing that versus the ethics of, of putting it back in, this whole idea of the tortured artist and, you know, whether like uh, like Ellswick becoming a bad artist once he's a happier person. Um, mm, yeah. Like is, is, are those two things one and the same? I mean, that's, personally speaking, that's that's an argument that I, I really often don't like. Uh, I wouldn't criticize it too much here because it's such a small part. But yet also, if you're going to make an argument of someone's, trauma of the bad experiences in their life making them the person they are today and that they're you know ultimately if not happy then kind of at peace with the idea that they've been through those experiences then equally Mm. that that ties into their reality of the artist they are today as well as the person they are today then you have the idea of taking out people's memories like it's kind of ambiguous it's like has he literally given Ellswick's bad memories to the turn up and like Ellswick is like a different person in the sense of 
there's just chunks of his life that he and not just that he now that don't um uh torture him or, or play upon his mind but that he literally can't remember it's it's sort of there's so much there <laughs> it's just in this one yeah. little scene and again it's kind of endemic of, of this book being too full of ideas for for its own good but um i i didn't mind it so much there because i suppose it felt i don't know i can't put my finger on why but whereas whereas the rest of them felt as if these are ideas that should have been realized in the story he's trying to tell mm. here this one felt like similar to the cabinet like this is a completely different idea and it's just going to be dealt yeah. with briefly intrigue us and maybe the, the seed is planted for like oh this could be this could be dealt with in more detail in the future this world book yeah i think it's because like it does it this one do, didn't really bother me that much either like i was like again i would like to see it teased out more but i didn't want to see it teased out more in this particular book i think the reason that it i was fine with it is just because um there's no sense that this is like something that we should be dwelling on for yeah, the book it's just yeah. a little aside uh whereas like you know the value of uh money and gold and like where where that comes from like that feels like it's the central focus and because this is a complete novel then the idea is that we should have a complete view of that and it's not complete and that's why it's it's more difficult to come to terms with that than it is um the other ideas one thing that um jumps out at me inevitably because of the times we're in and i'm sure this wouldn't have come up if we were talking about this last year i couldn't help reading into any instances where the police showed up there is like this notion of like it's it's very slight in some cases sometimes not so much of like police brutality and like who decides what's right or wrong and everything it's um it's interesting the first time we hear about Ellswick is like in the newspapers it's like front page news and they're like some harmless guy like just making lit doodling on his uh making forgeries but like they're ultimately kind of harmless like they could cause a lot of harm but they don't and you know moist is kind of thinking like why is this front page news when there's literally people dying yeah, other it's places that idea you know? of, of like uh, crimes against property or against economy being a uh, the mm. law ultimately punishing them much harsher than, than crimes against people particularly people without property or capital yeah and there's another point where um there's the what was it there's a point where moist is saying that like he had to be careful to not not for the police not to charge him with assault of an officer and he goes on to say like you know what counts as assault of an officer really depends on the officer officer's day and i'm like oh god that rang so like that felt so poignant at this point moment in time i was like yeah so like what and it's interesting that this is this kind of thing now maybe it's only coming to the surface here because of like what's going on in the news at the moment it's interesting that this is coming to light in a book where Vimes isn't the protagonist, you know, because if, if Vimes was, if this was a Vimes book, I'm sure he'd be able to justify actions in whatever way. But because this is like peered at from the outside by the general public, it's kind of looked at in a slightly more cynical sense. Maybe I don't think this was like a really deliberate thing. I think I'm sure a lot of the times that these things were said, it was kind of like a little joke or a little aside and not supposed to be the focus, but. I don't know. I felt like it was there, and it's kind of hard to ignore. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I suppose it shows the the value of Moist's point of view in general. Like Pratchett had said before, that it's very hard for him to write an Ankh Morfork book that doesn't instantly become a watch book. 
while I really like the truth, one of my problems with that was you're, you're kind of feeling at certain points of like, why isn't this a watchbook? This is like, why haven't they, they solved this? Yes. Whereas Moist is presented with problems that only he can, can deal with. But I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are really big fans of the watch series. who almost wish like, oh yeah, I, I like, I gladly trade any other rank more for book for another watch book. But I think the, the value of, of whether it's Moist or William or Ceteris or, or anyone else, seeing the watch from the outside and not getting the rose-tinted view of it, you get through Vimes' eyes. Yeah, it's really important in him bringing out these extra aspects of policing. And it goes back to this idea that is become more awkward for him to manage the further the series goes on and the more Vimes grows and the watch grow in power and stature and the more we get to know Veterinary, is that like he kind of set up this hive of scum and villainy in Ankh-Morpork to set the stories there that then kind of becomes better as it goes along to but, but we're still left with, with these uh pieces like a di- dictatorial ruler in 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 veterinary you can tell he doesn't want to go too idealistic or simple like depicting Ankh-Morpork as like being on the road towards utopia but at the same time he's grown fond enough of these characters that he doesn't want them you know, doing uh, doing bad things either. So when you when you can get the view from outside of those characters, you can see that like Angmorpork's far from a utopia, and a lot of these structures, while there might be good people at the top of them, are still structures that are kind of founded on on inequality, on stuff like punishing the Elswicks of this world much more than they'll ever punish the lavishes of this world. You know deflated somewhat by you never we do have a happy ending where the, the lavishes and the, the grand trunk board and, and so on do get caught but there, there is a sense that that has to be worked towards rather than the steady grind of ankh Morpork is is getting people like Halswick and, and locking them up and and letting these the, the rusts and the, the lavishes and all the rest of them you know pursue their respectable ways of, of hurting people without <laughs> yeah without, without anything else going on interesting way of putting that yeah right. it's why i mean uh, we touched on it with Toads and we'll see when we cover Snuff but like I said like Nightwatch really should have been the, the end for, for Vimes that he retires there and it would have been interesting if you take him out of the watch I mean obviously you've got Carrot who's like an absolute paragon of virtue but it would open up the idea more that you could then present the watch a bit more ambiguously and a bit more grey and, and the idea that they are uh, you know um a police force of a fundamentally unequal city that's run by a dictator albeit a kind yeah. of like coldly lovable one like if you had vimes from the outside looking in thinking oh have i made a monster here there, there could have been a lot to mine with that i think that, that we we see aspects of here when we get that view from the outside in through moist but we perhaps don't see as, as much as we could and as you were saying it's something that we're all the more conscious of given given all the yeah you know situation now in in well, particularly in the US, but but not solely limited to the US. Yeah, yeah. There was another thing that I kind of touched upon. This is another thing that, like, maybe it's coincidental that it's there, or it might be something that Terry Pratchett was quite deliberately trying to do, um, but it just didn't really branch out as much. It's an interesting idea that I don't really mind so much that it's not explored as much, because I think it does okay. But the idea of the relationship between money and religion in this book I think is quite interesting like I love how um, one touch that I liked it's a very small thing but um, Mr. Bent mentions no sorry a veterinary mentions when they're first touring the bank that there was a temple built beneath the bank 
but they didn't actually attribute it to any particular god. The idea that they just build a temple there and hope that a god would just show up, which is a very weird little piece of information to have there but it it immediately like sets up a link between the idea of like you know religion and money and like who controls like you know the money and that sort of thing like i found it very hard like not to think of um like we we were both raised in ireland but had the idea have only very uh, short number of years ago uh, the church controlled quite a lot of what went on in like the government and like people's day-to-day life and i'm sure that included like you know people's finances as well like you know what what people's like what what things were what public funds were spent on i'm sure like the church had a great deal to do with that and this one it's not really like it doesn't really heavily influence the plot but it does kind of touch on it in little ways like ultimately um it is the the golems that show up at the end they they become the currency or like the value of the currency like within like pork and the reason that they they become that way is because uh moist was able to control them and the reason he was able to do that is because they thought that he was an omnian priest so you know there's that tenuous link there as well it's just like there's lots of like little touches there and i think like i don't think terry pratchett is trying to do anything more than say organized religions do sometimes have their hand in like the honey pot and they do move things around a little bit and i think i think that's about as deep as it goes but i'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it did you did you think about it that much yeah, or did you, did you read any deeper i, I kind into of it? thought of it from the other direction in that it's about how money and how the uh, systems of economy borrow from the symbolism and the cachet of religion to again make themselves just seem like this natural and inevitable thing like mike's wondering about why they always build banks like temples you know Mm, yeah yeah, i mean you you look at you know bank of ireland that's on a college green and it's this really grand building in dublin and i was feel disappointed when i used to be a tour guide and stand up at the trinity college and tell people it's like what's that one that's a bank you know (laughs) it's like (laughs) yeah (laughs) i know it should be something better it actually used to be where where the old parliament before the active union was but in any case, so you have the, the, the bank like borrowing from these ideas to get that, I suppose, get get feelings, pe- people's feelings of of awe or, and trust around money. So in that way that they don't just see it as this malleable thing that only makes sense in a particular context, like the context of the city, but instead see it as something immutable and eternal and inscrutable. Kind of the way Mr. Bent is talking it up when when... Mike's is talking to him and he says that like you know you can't change numbers and he, he's talking about gold mm. and, you know and this raps like it is severe kind of rhapsody of just how how immutable its, its value is yeah it kind of put me in mind of did you know the episode of south park where uh I, I think it was sometime after the financial crash and stan's da kind of starts this like religious cult around the like pacifying the economy but it's a very kind of sackcloth and ashes thing like they're all going around and he's dirty robes like basically being penitent because they've upset the economy and they're promising not to like spend any uh, spend like they're gonna you know just like live in poverty so as not to upset the economy kind of in it it was very much paralleling <laughs> like how you would have say religious zealots like fasting you know so or like ref- refraining mm, yeah. from sex or, or things like that <laughs> and uh yeah yeah it sort of put me in mind of that like how again it's this man-made man-managed system that we oftentimes fall into the trap of treating like it's this 
inscrutable outside thing like the sun or something that we all just have to kind of live under and, and live around yeah i suppose like uh you have it even on like the dollar bill i think isn't it they have in god we trust yeah. isn't that, that's, like... that's, a, that's a relatively recent there was um eisenhower put that on in the 50s to, to draw the contrast between a uh, god-fearing america and godless communist russia yeah and i think uh moist is something similar i think with his dollar bill i can't remember what it is he writes but he just like he says something like in some ancient language and just says oh yeah we have to have something like that in there people have more faith on things if like it's got big fancy wording on it he also says at one point a prayer is just hope with a beat to it which is like a nice way <laughs> of describing it like yeah it's it's interesting like how um yeah how he how he uses religion in that, that way it's, it's fun, funny how it both came out from different angles actually yeah so i think your way makes more sense though from being honest what did you think given all, all of, of the character of mr bent mr bent i he had he had moments and some beats that i quite liked but it was very hard to get invested in him when i felt it was a character i've seen a couple of times before like um uh, th- there wasn't really much new here like i actually i i have re- i read this book when it was released as well and this is this is only the second time i've read it since so i couldn't actually remember what it was he was i know it's speculated early on that he's actually a vampire so um it's supposed to be a bit of a shock when it turns out he was a clown but um, I didn't remember that. But it didn't when when I finally found out. Oh my god, he was a clown the whole time. If I'd read that in an early Discworld book, I'm sure I would have been like, oh, that's pretty cool. But in this, I'm just kind of like, okay, you know, it was very, it felt very standard and unsurprising, which is and and this this might just be the result of us being thirty something books in, you know, like I, it's very hard to differentiate at this point whether it's something that like is just written in such a way that didn't really gel with me or if it was just fatigue at this point i'm like yeah it didn't really uh, i i don't find that amusing just because like you know i've seen similar things happen in previous books so i'm like whatever i like the my favorite moment with him is uh the entire moment when he makes oh, a mistake that's brilliantly written isn't it that, that kind of future tends to takes where it flags up that the the fella who you know, mm. he accused of making a mistake is going to go down as being famous in banking and like people will recount where they were at the time. And It's a great section. It's a wonderful piece of writing. That was my favorite bit with Mr. Bent in its entirety. Like, but yeah, other than that sequence, like it was, he just kind of filled the role of Mr. Grote, albeit a bit more like, you know, um, rigid in his beliefs and stuff like that. It just, yeah, didn't really grab me. I have to say he, he was, there was no, he wasn't problematic in any way. He was just fine. What about you? I, I really liked him, but like a lot of the book, I feel like, again, there's too much going on. So for one, like, I think there's some, like, you're right in that he, he fulfills initially early a similar, he fulfills uh, particularly early on a similar role to Grote in that he sort of is our window into this hidebound old institution who has this enduring love for it and, and the glory it represents. I think the big difference is, is that he's much more oppositional to Moist than, than Grote is. Like, even when Grote mm. gets that, like, uh, you know, all those old postmen in to make Moist run through that gauntlet, he's still sort of excited by the by the prospect of what Moist is going to do, whereas Bent is, is quite opposed to it. And I do think there is a, an interesting idea that isn't quite teased out of, like, the difference between letters and numbers, and, like, Moist is a man of mm. letters, a man of words, and Bent putting all this hope in numbers sort of being immutable and, and you can't manipulate them. 
Although, of course, he did, in the, as we find out in the creative accounting he done for the, the lavishes. While I think it's interesting and effectively enough done that you, you see this initial kind of straightforward contrast and, and between letters and numbers collapsing when we see how the numbers can be manipulated, I do think that there's something there that wasn't quite realised in, like, Bent fundamentally representing this, like, like substance and moist representing style and them having to reconcile with each other and come together in some way to make the best of things you know like like that moist kind of having to realize oh actually there are certain things that are immutable and and, and I've, I've got to give at some point you know i i feel odd saying this because i've just gone on about how part of what the book does well is is kind of puncturing this idea that we regard the economy as, as immutable and inscrutable when uh you know when it's something we have made but i i don't know i, I think there, there's something there is again it would have given moist more of a journey for him to kind of i suppose come to terms with bent Don for bent just to be the one who who changes and you know uh and i like that in itself that like like we see his his trust in something like gold is it's flagged very on as like so rigid it's going to break because ultimately you know what are you going to do buy something yeah like yeah. gold doesn't really have <laughs> yeah. in, inherent value it's just what we put in it but i think there's something really uh i don't know whether this is just me but there's something i i find great pathos in the enthusiasm of the square like when you see a really boring dull <laughs> person actually getting enthusiastic about something and it's usually something like that the onlooker whether it's us as the reader or the other characters or or it's it's in real life and you're talking to this person you can't fathom why they're enthusiastic about it and that scene where bent takes like moist into the counting room and he's just so excited about how it all runs <laughs> and his little uh, like panopticon style like kind of exercise bike that he can look around and, and look at people and moist is just kind of <laughs> amused like there's just something really touching about this austere professional facade melting away and this tender and mm. pathetic human passion peeking out like i when we were catching up before we set recording i i was saying to i just consider myself a very boring person and even all the more so during the pandemic so i i, I don't know i relate a lot to just the, the vulnerability that is there in like nakedly admitting your passion for something that other people aren't going to understand when mm. so much of your persona is built on like not really expressing passion about other things you know and, and that that touches me too and in, in when you have the scene early on where moist notice miss drapes is clearly sweet on bent and bent is just oblivious like that's something similar she's just quite like severe rigid person but it's clear she's holding this this torch and, and mm. she's going to get burnt that line later where she spends the night helping him basically kind of helping him put himself back together but she's so conscious of like propriety in the sense this primness and being a proper lady is something that we see satirized through through Gladys the Golem. They they both read Lady Deirdre Wagon's um like guide of, of etiquette, and she's thinking she she's realizes that she's going to have to admit to, even though she didn't actually uh, like have sex with Ben, but she spent the night in a in a man's a unmarried man's room, <laughs> and it says she'd rather she decided she'd rather be a scarlet woman than a grey woman. And I just love that. Like, it, it perfectly encapsulates her and her journey. And the little, like, you know, the bit at the end when they admit they're getting married is just so lovely and funny. Like, the, the line about the mm. magnetic properties of an engagement ring <laughs> and, and the people yeah, yeah. picking Mr. Bent up after we've seen from 
that great scene earlier that you mentioned where, where they're also terrified of him that mm. this kind of very human bit so i really like all of that but i think what what hurts it is that like somewhere along the line he kind of becomes unmoored from the actual plot right like like up at yeah. that point like as i said it's sort of unclear what what happens is that him going missing collapses the trust in the bank but again it's sort of unclear that like has this just happened or or is this like something cosmo actually planned and then it happens but then we get we get in something deeper with the fact that the gold wasn't there and it kind of should be crucial to finding him because he's the one who can account for the gold and and you have the scene where mice is sort of under house arrest and he's looking through the ledgers to find records of bent and so on and get to the bottom of this but by the time we get to the trial and all his absence isn't really all that significant you know there isn't that this sense of like mice thinking like if i just had bent here i could make sense of what's going on or veterinary or whoever saying you know like well as mr bent is absent we're going to have to just like pursue this as a court of law and, and suspect that you've stolen the gold uh mr mr lipwig so when he returns like it's a fun set piece and, and the reveal of him being a clown and so forth is fun again that that bit with with mice take, taking the bullet for veterinary sort of ties back <laughs> into the whole perception the value of perception in that mice sees like veterinary's rule is built on how implacable and how cool he seems and that he can't let that mm. be spoiled by him taking a pie to the face so that's all nice but it's like like him coming back like it ends up prompting poochie just admitting that they've taken the money but it, it feels kind of loose and coincidental you know what i mean like, like you feel as if mm. she's such a volatile loose cannon for the lavishes and they're also kind of like obnoxious and, and thick and you know narcissistic and blind to how others perceive them that you get the feeling that there are any number of ways they could have been goaded into admitting that they done this that like the key wasn't getting bent back and i think it's signified by the fact that like that scene in the clowns guild or the, the fools guild rather like happens after all of the the, the plot has essentially mm. been resolved and it's just it's like cribbins showing up and then quickly being dispatched it, it's like all these loose ends he's just been left with that we then have to tie off you know so, so yeah. there's something sort of messy about it so I, I really like a lot of how he's depicted and what he represents but just yeah, somewhere along the line he just becomes extraneous to, to things I, I i the central joke that should be noted here is that like he's sort of a joke on uh, john major who uh, the the famously like bought the gray man the famously dull tory leader and british prime minister who was said ran away from the circus to become an accountant or become a politician <laughs> like you have bent having a similar similar backstory yeah i do feel like um one of the key things you said there that i think really would have helped the plot is if he and moist could have like come together to kind of somehow resolve the plot like in that way like the idea of like you know selling the steak selling the sizzle that does really resound with moist character like in this like it's so it's it, it, it does kind of tie into the central themes because it's all about like perception and like how people view things so like rather than having things um resolved by the golems coming in and like who figures out how to control them etc etc it would have been nice if not as simple as this but like if it was something along the lines of all right, uh, Moist, you've got one day to figure out how we're going to get this bank up and running. And he has to go back and he and Bent have to work yeah. together to kind of figure something oh, something along those lines. What if the golems only listen to Mr. Bent because rather than having letters in their head, they have numbers in their head or something? 
Oh, that would have been good, actually. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and like so, something like that, because that's the thing. Because the it would have been nice if they'd like um, resolved it that way. But like the golems are also sort of central to the plot, so it has to link to that as well. But because as you say, it it does just feel like it all unravels in the end. Like you know, it's everything's tied. To, it's like. Uh, a piece of string with frayed ends you know like everything kind of goes off in like different directions at the end and like each individual bit is kind of somewhat satisfying in its own way but like they just it just doesn't all tie together yeah, so like it's yeah. a little unsatisfying that way do you know too just just one short note on mr bent is that he, he lives in mrs cakes but she seems very yeah. different from how we usually see her as sort of like formidable subservient kind of stuff. obnoxious but ridiculous yeah yeah she's a little more just kind of like a meek middle-aged woman yeah and, and it, it sort of feels a pity i mean for one like look Discworld's always had a pretty loose continuity and, and it feels quite churlish to criticize it but those inconsistent characterizations or continuity errors definitely jar a bit more this far in the series than when they done earlier when the whole thing was taking shape and it just feels a pity because given that we have this mystery of bent and like who he is it feels like seeing her as this person who you know she's got a werewolf daughter she's comfortable with like going up and bullying wizards and dealing with all sorts of undead but her being a little mm. kind of unsettled by bent despite all of that would have been just a, a nice way of planting that seed in the reader of like that you know there's something seriously up with this guy so you know watch out for it mm. but i suppose they didn't want to give her too much more time because maybe like maybe Terry Pratchett was just aware that like this is already going in so many different directions if I you know attribute any more time I, yeah, I still think it could have been true, done yeah, yeah yeah I just think it's it's less giving up more time in that like in what we do see of her she doesn't really seem like the mm. the character we've seen in, in earlier books we do see Love Miller yeah. again I think for the first time since Reaper Man which I think at the end of that we yeah. were ambiguous as to whether she had ran away from home with uh, what's his name the, the other wolf the, the, the fella who's like he's only a man some of the time no, it was nice to see these characters popping up again, but yeah, it just seems a a, a bit, slight bit of a, a missed opportunity here. Absolutely, yeah. A um, little side note on it, I don't know if you remember, there's a point where Veterinary is doing the uh, Discworld version of a Sudoku puzzle. Uh, yeah. So when I was reading that, I actually, so Sudoku is uh, actually, I'm sure you know, it's Japanese. It's an abbreviation of basically the numbers must be single. Um, and it's like all abbrevi abbreviated to make Sudoku. And Morpork version is Jikan no Muda, and I recognized uh, Jikan no, which meant something of time. I knew that much, and I looked up what Muda was, and it means waste. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I was delighted to like like get this little side joke. That I'm like, I bet you not many people are actually going to know this, but yeah. So the oh, Jikan no Muda is a waste of time. <laughs> I thought that was great. Yeah, see, this is the thing. Like, there's lots of little things in here that are still really good. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think. Is there any more characters that we haven't talked about? Yeah, actually, I like that early scene. Just think of little things where like. With, with with heretofore when he gets the hat from your man and then then cranberry cosmos uh heavy comes in and kills him and we have this scene where, mm. where he goes back to cosmo and, and cosmo's just so blasé about just like needlessly killing these people and it really I, I just a lovely way of sort of illustrating how he's kind of tried to um emulate the sort of bond villain chic of veterinary yeah. uh, you know by kind of like coldly ordering these men's deaths and so on but how 
that's both kind of funny and how pathetic it is, but how horrible it manifests itself in, being in real life when he's mm. when he's just like needlessly and casually being like, oh yeah, uh, kill him. Well, like we've already bribed him, I'll kill him anyway. You know, it doesn't even seem like he wants yeah. to get the money back. It's just something he thinks veterinary would do. So uh, I really <laughs> like that for like again, it's something that as the book goes on, it, it dominates his character more and more and makes him seem like a you know a, a more and more of a, a a buffoon but early on you see that the side to that that makes him a actually a more dangerous and, and worse person but yeah it was just like one small thing we, we hadn't covered what did you think about the way women are are covered here in in, in the book that's a bit of a tricky one um like it, it kind of depends how much you read into it like if you kind of just if, if I was just to kind of glance at this as like, oh, well, it all ends in quite a progressive way. Like, you know, because um, Gladys is kind of perceived as this very retro, but also quite tongue in cheek, like, you know, 50s secretary kind of person who's like making sandwiches for Moist. And like, it's kind of implied she might have a little bit of a crush on him, massaging his shoulders and stuff like that. And it's like very, very outdated. And like, this is kind of reprimanded at the end by... Uh, Spike, who's like, I'll have a little talk with her, and she gives her what seems like a Discworld feminist text in order to kind of ins- uh, basically make her a more progressive golem. You know, there's a point, Moist pats her on the shoulder, and she says, like, oh, that was almost inappropriate touching. And she's saying how, like, I want to have it all. It feels like it's well meaning, but very, very broad in what it's trying to do. Like, it, it does like seem to be making an attempt. To show, like, uh, to say, like, oh, yeah, women should be, like, you know, be their own people and they shouldn't be subservient. But it doesn't really feel much deeper than that. I will say I do think that I think Adora Dearheart is a very well-realized character. But that's just her character. And it's just, like, proof that Terry Pratchett is just slowly getting better and better at writing female characters. But the key examples seem to be her, Gladys, Pucci, who's a... <laughs> she's kind of a character all on her own I'm not sure even if you could uh, put her under that and then there's also um, the old old woman lavish what's her name again um, Tops, Topsy lavish who um, I quite liked actually I thought she was um, very good just because she's you know a businesswoman seems very very capable in what she's doing um, but she's also like quite happy to have a good time at like no one like at everybody else's expense I mean, overall, in a broad sense, I do think that, like, things aren't too problematic, but, like, also quite simple. What about you? I mean, it's a strange question to tackle because it's not really, I suppose, a book. The focus or anything. Yeah, and it doesn't go out of its way to to address any specific team in depth, but there's just, like, it is a very mixed bag. Like, I sort of like the idea with the Laidry Deirdre wagon stuff that we see comedically with Gladys and some kind of like I suppose tragicomically with um Miss Strapes of mm. like patriarchal systems of this idea of, you know, what how ladies should act, what they should do and not do being a thing that becomes policed by the oppressed group itself, you know? Like that like Lady Deirdre it, it isn't this like a it isn't this book from a man telling you this is what we want women to act like. Women who have bought into this like very classically patriarchal idea of prim and proper ladies who should know their place contributing to to this idea you know i think that's just an interesting way look I've, if i recall it's dealt with a bit more in a character i think it's glenda in unseen academicals and and this stuff like the, the stuff she reads and so on but we'll, we'll get to that but i i thought that was that was an interesting thing to come up i i like 
Adora Bell, but I, I feel like there's just like one too many scenes where she's like, oh, typical man, or like, you know, and she's like, oh, I bet the golems listen to you because you're a man. Like, it, it that just feels really like sassy 90s feminist kind of stuff, you know? Like, like how they do, how the, the strong female character in like, like in like a 90s film or, or uh, TV show would be, would be depicted where they're like, they're not taking any shit from men, so this manifests itself in them, like, just like moaning about like only a man would do this a lot this really kind of essentialist stuff and look mm. you know like I'm, I'm sure there's like th- those kind of complaints aren't entirely damning things in themselves i'm sure there's plenty of times uh, women would roll their eyes and think like oh yeah typical man or only a man would do that but we i don't know we it's just done a few too many times where I, i'm just like is this supposed to be how how her sort of no nonsense all substance no bullshit personality that we saw wonder thing going postal is this is how it's manifesting itself here which is this i mean, it seemed quite trite and it, to me but but anyway the other thing is i think with, there's something slightly uncomfortable with like the fact that like poochie is just a walking fat joke you know yeah like, I, I know um, i know cosmo uh, part, part of it, 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 it with him it's also that he's kind of like fat and very ill-suited playing the part of a veterinary but i think Part of the reason that jarred less at me, I mean, whatever, maybe it's because I'm a kind of like guilt-wracked man who's looking out for the ways we 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 wrong women and the 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 depiction of the woman stood out to me more than the depiction of the man. But I think, I mean, for one, in in general, uh, women tend to be judged more more harshly on their body image and so on than men. Not that it is not that it isn't an issue with men, but but certainly more so um, in a lot of cases with women. But also because with Cosmo it becomes a plot point like it's it's tied into this idea of his attempts to emulate veterinary while being clearly ill-suited towards being veterinary like you know i mean it literally becomes a plot point but it's what ends up leading to you know leading him further down the road to madness because he needs this ring widened and, and so on whereas with her it, it isn't really like there's nothing done with it you know like, I, I suppose to contrast again, to go back to Weird Sisters, would be you have a, the odd joke made about how, like, Lady Felmet and that is this, like, big woman, but she's kind of really formidable and sort of, like, dominates her husband and, and, and the people around her with her size and, and kind of, like, cows the, the people. And, you know, look, you can kind of argue back and forth about, like, how, whether that ties into particularly negative um, stereotypes or whatever. But for me, that's, that's just, I don't know, less glaring because there's something done with it with with her character and, and with how her character functions in the book whereas Pucci other than the fact that she's Cosmo's twin and he's also overweight there's nothing really done other than like jokes about her kind of being referred to as a society beauty because she's you know rich enough to bribe whatever society magazine editors into, mm. into you know uh, talking about this and yeah, again, it comes back to the messiness of the book and the stuff that isn't given room to breathe, that you have a a lot of things that aren't, for me, really, like, glaring, red flag, horrible things in and of themselves, but they just sort of sit there and uh, add up to add up to something that, like, sits a little less well with me than, than it could. The other thing is the, um, like, I like Topsy Lavish, and I like the backstory of her originally being sir joshua's mistress is, is interesting but there's a weird bit too and she's talking about how like oh you know mistresses used to be much like smarter and we'd like organized out the rota with the wives essentially of who'd see him when and you know we weren't just expected to be good looking because she's obviously has a, a good head on her shoulders for money in a way that feels 
you know, you feel such the kind of hackneyed complaints you feel you hear from all older people about like in my day, but particularly so with like it, it's a kind of like not like the other girls argument, like this idea of like, oh yeah, here's my here's my uh, you know ex pole dancer sex pot mistress grown old and savvy, but she's not like those other bimbos who are you know like like these yeah. days who are just content to get a four coat off the you know the the rich man that they're sleeping with and again it's it's a small thing but it just it struck me it, i suppose it stands out because you have those other moments where characters are kind of asserting these questionable things where either other characters or the narrative seem to challenge them on it so whether it's moist kind of being like sort of pettily jealous of the fact that adora is more interested in the golems than done in him or whether it's adora kind of being like baffled by who is it she's baffled by how obsessive they are and moist is kind of thinking like oh like he's thinking to himself it's just like you with the golems you know oh i can't remember um... but in any case you have these moments where when you have characters expressing these blinkered views the book makes it clear that they're kind of meant to be you know just like partial and subjective views whereas topsy saying that just kind of unchallenged makes it more feel like this is like this is just a view of the world she's giving us, you know? Yeah, and you could kind of say it's not very... Well, maybe you could say it's well-complimented, I'm not really sure, but the uh, ultimate fate of Dr. Flat at the end just being thrown into, like, the strip club at the end, which isn't really given... In my opinion, now, this is the Pink Pussycat Club, which I think we saw back in uh, Thud, where uh, Nobby was dating... Um, oh, what was... Bunny, was that Bunny? Oh, Tawny, yes, yeah, that was a Tawny. And, like, that was, we got a lot of, um, got a fairly good insight into what the club itself was like then. But here, I think it's almost deliberately not given any color. The only thing that we can kind of take away from it, I remember, was uh, the club itself was very happy with paper money because they produced something that could uh, be slipped into a garter belt, which I really liked. I thought that was a great line. It's very, very good. Uh, so. With with this, like so many other parts of the book, it's like there's two sides of the same coin. You know, there's a good side and a bad side. Like, it does some things well, but then you could go back and say, ah, yeah, but this thing, you know, not so great. And, like, it's almost every aspect of this book has this weird dichotomy where it does something quite well, but either something it does affects something else or just a different part of the book just isn't as good in, like, the same sense. So it's... Yeah, it's kind of the same vibe I got with like the treatment of women as well. Some parts of it are great. Like I like I really like Topsy. I didn't take as much issue as I think you did with the bit about the previous mistresses. Again, I quite like that bit. And the same with Adora Bell. I I get where we get where you're coming from now with like the sassiness and all. But I just oh yeah, look look, they aren't enormously glaring things. And and as I said, it's it's kind of it's more just a collection of bits where I, I just felt there it was worth flagging them and talking about them. Like I, I quite like Adora's interaction with professor Fleed, where even though he's being really lecherous, she most expects her to go mad, but in actual fact, she's so no nonsense. She's just kind of like, I need this guy to translate this. So I'm just going to put up with this because I, I don't really care. I'm sort of a, you know, whatever I'm, I'm like above this. He's only a ghost. Anyway, I do think there is something a little clumsy in his depiction in that. Like he's this dirty old man, who was then completely clueless about the existence of strip clubs, you know? And like, obviously yeah. we've had it with the wizards before of how institutionalized they become and how like unaware of the world outside. But it's just odd with him where like, 
like while the other wizards look at women as like a foreign species, he is obviously kind of you know like as this like creepy charm. Like you get the feeling with when he's saying those like cheesy lines to Adora that this is something he's done with every halfway attractive woman he's ever encountered, but he's lecherous in that way and yet had like no idea that these things existed. And again, it's a very small thing. It just, it just contributed to this overall idea of like this book being full of a lot of interesting ideas that aren't quite fully realized or, or teased out or feel a bit roughly executed. Just, I know a bit like a, like a first draft or something, you know, I mean, maybe it's just a sign yeah, that people yeah. will inevitably speculate. Oh, yeah, I think this is around when he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but I think as much as anything, it could just be like, he's an immensely successful author who probably has a certain amount of protection from editors at this point, you know, like that they're not going to come back to him and mm. say, Oh, this is good, Terry, but revise this, this and this essentially mm. send it straight to print because he, he would command that sort of a uh, stature. Yeah. I think you could be right. Like I, it's, it's such a, it's a weird thing. This is probably the longest we've talked on any book on like, you know, what exactly is it about? Cause usually we've been able to suss it out what it is with this one. Like, even though, I think we've probably just laid it down to like narrative messiness and like structural messiness and that sort of thing. And just like too many ideas packed into it. It still feels quite vague because again, there's just things that we like about it that like, and the things that we don't like are kind of a little more intangible than they were in like previous novels. So um, that makes it really tricky. It's a difficult one. Like it's, been hard it's been it's a diff it's been a difficult novel to really nail down in terms of quality <laughs> one okay one thing i just want to cover briefly before we we get to ranking it and uh it's just a thing that niggles with me you know and i i feel like while this one probably won't rank particularly highly it's a book i think we like a bit more than it seems from this than this podcast where we spent a lot of time you know, paying lip service to like, oh, this is a really interesting idea, but here at length is why it wasn't executed well. Uh, so I'm realizing this is going to contribute to it by saying possibly my least favorite thing in the book. And like, I mean, this is like one of the most leaden and tedious jokes in the entire history of the disc world is that business with Amesbridge chef being allergic to the word garlic. It's so bad. Like it's it's just like like an utterly <laughs> pointless again. Like like you know never never really it comes up, but. I was I was sitting there and I was I was thinking the thing it put me in mind of is did you know the joke in Blackadder the tours when you have the the two actors who um they have the superstition over Macbeth and anytime he says Macbeth they go oh, into this yeah, like, ridiculous yeah. kind of incantation to banish the uh, away the bad luck and and that's really funny <laughs> and I was like well for one like it's much funnier to see that kind of thing on on screen done in a book you know where you're actually mm. seeing them having to jump around and do this stuff done being told he flung a knife and started speaking fluent Quermian. The, you know it's just a medium thing it's not like certain things work better to, but for another i'm like mm. that sort of ties in like like it's a real life thing among uh, shakespearean actors that saying Macbeth is bad luck right and it's also the dynamic set up in that episode of Blackadder is that these actors are really arrogant and really dismissive of him as a butler and the prince regent kind of, he, he likes them and is being equally dismissive of Blackadder. So this is the sort of only sly way initially Blackadder can get back at them is just by puncturing this kind of pompous balloon they have by saying it. Whereas Amesbury is just, just like perfectly amiable bloke who goes to pieces at the word garlic. Like, so again, unlike the Macbeth thing, which is a real, um, superstition this has like how someone being allergic to oh, the sound of a word 
Like that's that's kind of an interesting idea, but it's it's not one that's discussed at all. It's just there to set up <laughs> this joke, and then the joke doesn't work. It's like, like what's the point of seeing this this chef do all this stuff? It was just it was so <laughs> bad. I think it, it was it was like uh, in that initial hundred pages where I was like, wow, this book's full of good ideas. That was the one point where I was like, oh god, like it, it, it was so bad. It had me thinking. I was like, is there like is there an extra level to this that I'm just not getting? Like I was, it's, <laughs> but look. That's that's that rant done with. It's funny, guys. I, I I think often Terry Pratchett does miss. Uh, this is probably something we talked a, a little about with with Mark Burroughs. I think Terry Pratchett is kind of like as funny as he can be. His his reputation as a, as a comedy fantasy author kind of sells him short because there's so much more to his work than that. You know. So like mm. often I'll be reading some of the books and some of the jokes might land or come across a little hackneyed, but I think oh it doesn't matter because you know I'm reading these for more than just a laugh. There's there's so much going on here, but rarely had a joke not landing annoyed me so much. You know. Yeah, yeah, I, I get what you. I'd actually I'd forgotten about that, and it's it's very throwaway. It didn't bother me to the same extent that it bothered you, but it was such a throwaway joke that I just didn't really even think about it much. And it's, yeah, it's a bizarre one. Um, what did you think of, do you remember when Moist and Adora discover what is essentially like the grey room or whatever that's called? You know, in Fifty Shades of Grey, he's got that secret room. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I forget what. Your man Joshua Lavish's sex toys and yeah. Yeah, and they find all his like toys and stuff. And I'm like, that's... It does. I feel like the only reason that they have that is so they can have the joke of like Mr. Fusspot getting like his new toy, which is like very obviously like a dildo or something, which is kind of like it's kind for the most part. I'm kind of like this is kind of dumb, but during the committee meeting where you can see that there's a bit where it's like everyone was kind of quiet and then they can just see Mr. Fusspot being propelled across the room because the device in his mouth is kind of chugging away or something like that and then at another point he comes back as dumb as that was i kind of thought that was a little bit hilarious <laughs> like the build-up is really dumb but that in itself was kind of yeah, funny it does, it does take a lot to set up the joke but i i do think it's funny uh, because again there's more groundwork laid with like mr foot at being this lovably ridiculously enthusiastic dog who we have all these scenes of like like him waking moist up by slobbering on his face so we're just sort of used to him hovering around the background kind of being being a nuisance but also being really valuable sorry just very briefly another thing about the structure of like we initially begin with the the threat of like the lavishes are going to try to kill the dog because then they will inherit the shares and that just goes away yeah Yeah, that peters away completely but but in any case you're you're kind of used to him just showing up at these ridiculous like at these the worst possible moment to you know bring a bit of levity that's sometimes welcome and sometimes like oh this fucking dog i'm trying to be serious here so just the it, it feels like funny escalation of that to have him have this like sex toy in his mouth propriety dictates that like no one really talks about it but they're all aware of it it's just funny so you as you say you have him just kind of like buzzing through these meetings and they all look at it and they're like well anyway you know like, get, get him back forward <laughs> I, I don't know I, I think I'm, I'm 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 all out of notes at this point Do you want to, to get to ranking this uh, just one last thing I wanted to mention um, one thing that I quite liked uh, because I know we've talked about a lot of things that were like annoying and again and it is it is kind of a guilty act now at this point that whenever we like if we talk badly about a book I want to just like emphasize that like no Terry Pratchett book is ever like irredeemable like they're all good but um, just some are better than others. But there's one scene that I particularly liked 
in this is um, Moist is brought before Lord Veterinary and Veterinary shows him the ring and he asks him to hold and actually this is the great thing that he doesn't actually ask maybe I think he says like why don't you pick it up or something but he's kind of asking him questions about the bank and it's like an interrogation but the beauty of it and this is the great thing about like Veterinary's character it's one of the reasons we like him so much is that it's kind of implied that in Moist's head this is like some kind of psychological mind game that Veterinary is doing. But at the end of it, Veterinary is like, why did you hold on to the ring so long? I mean, that could have burst into flame and burnt your hand. But like, he's in his head, he's thinking like, this is a game. This is like torture. I have to come up with an answer before I can put the ring back. Yeah, uh, yeah. So like, it, it's it's a it's a great example of just like how veterinary mind, uh, Veterinary's mind works. He also, and just kind of following on from that, when he's talking about the committee, he compares it to an Iron Maiden in that like his way of getting answers out of people and like with with a committee people will voluntarily like step into it whereas they won't voluntarily step into an Iron Maiden and all he has to do is wait until like all the right voices speak up and just take the information from that which is just you know it's a nice little way of um, seeing how his mind works yeah anyway, yeah yes we should move on to the ranking of this right boil. so I'm, I'm looking at the list here and our usual practice is to go to the you know the, the uh, kind of series adjacent uh, books like the other witch books in this case the other moist books going postal is 10th and i feel like we're gonna waste a lot of time if, if we're ranking them out. yeah i'm looking down at around Toad, Jingo, Teeth of Time. That's exactly what I was they're all books that, like, again, they're, they're sequels in terms of their later books in it, one of the subseries that su- have a lot of interesting ideas but suffer generally from a kind of messiness. And, uh, yeah, like, like just overall seeing less satisfying and less well put together than, than, than the other books in those series or, or than other Discworld books in general. I'd probably put this below Thud, if I'm being honest now. I, like... I know we had problems with that, but I felt, thinking back, I feel like I had a lot of things that I liked about Thud, like real standout moments, uh, less so here. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's probably fair. I mean, I, I could kind of take it or leave it. Thud has great atmosphere at points and plots a little bit now, but, you know, it, it doesn't feel quite as messy. What about The Life Fantastic below that? This obviously has much more ideas and, and teams going on than The Life Fantastic, but could you make a case that, like, for what the life fantastic does it just does it much better is that worth more in my personal opinion yes so like the like fantastic i know like is you can we're trying to rank all these equally Mm -hmm. you know so like we can't really give you know special treatment to any but i think like fantastic is really just going for like um you know a tour of the disc world trying to show off like you know the many fantastic facets that it has and it builds to like a really good climax it's difficult to rank it by itself because it is part of a two books uh, structure but because there's so much going on and it's so punchy and enjoyable like i'd probably i'd probably give it more like again the main strength that making money has i think is the ideas behind it but because like so many of them are toothless in their execution like it's very difficult to give it too much credit so i'd probably rank it below life fantastic as uh, well. i would say so although i would argue that part of that is because while the life fantastic is a less ambitious book it does also have some interesting ideas that it executes well like with the figure of cohen who's introduced here who's obviously used to greater effect in um, interesting times and, and the last hero but we do touch on some of that idea of like what's the point of a hero when he gets old you know, there there's a kind of like they're very vivid scenes of fanaticism with the with the star people and Rincewind's 
idea of of like like wizardry and his identity as as a wizard. Like he actually has quite a good arc from Color of Magic to Life Fantastic. It's uh, the end. Of, it's just kind oh, of yeah, set after yeah. that, so he can be the you know coward tourist type. So yeah, mm, I'd, yeah I'd say yeah. I mean like like you you would argue here that like Life Fantastic succeeds in doing less while um making money fails in trying for more. But for me, it's all uh, I would put the caveat that Life Fantastic probably does more than people would generally give it credit for yeah i'd probably put this maybe a like i could put it above soul music which is below the life fantastic they both feel very similar in in kind of ideas unrealized i just think that like at least here he's going for more depth you know what i mean with that whole perception reality and so on like i feel like soul music there's less of an effort to plum interesting ideas behind the music like there are some untapped minds like susan's grief over her parents is like something that's frustratingly un- unrealized here and the idea of the uh music like like the kind of like the, the sort of buddy holly uh 27 club style of, of musicians dying early but i just don't feel like there's a lot of substance to soul music like i i feel here even though we, we have complained about it a lot Part of our complaints of being, oh, he set up this really interesting idea that he's clearly aware of and gets you thinking about and then doesn't give it room to breathe and take it in the right direction. Whereas I feel like in soul music, you don't even get a lot of that. Like there isn't a lot of, you know, really interesting ideas set up. Like there's a lot of fun in seeing the disc world adapt to, to rock and roll music with rocks in. But I, I don't think like there's a lot of idea, significant ideas behind it. I'll I'll give you no. I will argue that there are some ideas at play there. Now again, they're not very deep, but it does explore like the idea of youth culture and like uh, rebellious culture, like the way the wizards like react to the mm-hmm. rock music as like and basically turn into like adolescent children. Like uh, it's it's not very deep, but I do think that there's like something uh, worth thinking about there. I think the key word that you kind of land on there is fun, though, and like while it might not be like very very deep, it's at least very coherent and like the trio of musicians like their arc is very enjoyable and like very very readable slash watchable whereas making money like i i know i said at the start of this that like i think he just about keeps the plate spinning our discussion kind of <laughs> diffused that whereas i don't think he really does see, see, um i i don't know if if soul music is as coherent as uh, like I, I remember feeling like like those bits when they're touring there's just no plot impetus at that point you know like they're just going around playing gigs there's a kind of bit of a sense of Beatlemania about it but there I, I think I felt from I, I was more familiar when I read it with the the animated adaptation and I think like obviously it's, it's a much different thing because it's shorter runtime than, than uh, it would take you to read a book but I felt like in the animated adaptation they do a decent job of kind of establishing that like Buddy is withdrawing further and further into himself, into the music, and Cliff and Glaude are kind of worried about him. And there is this sense of like, well, this is building towards something like this can't go on. Whereas here, you just have them traveling around, and then you have the free concert, and it all kind of reaches ahead there. Or reach ahead is the wrong turn of phrase because it all sort of happens there. Like, there's no sense of, I know, there's no sense of build or structure in soul music for me. Um, I don't know if I'd agree with that now because like it does have like the lead up like where they have the tour and I think they're talking about the free concert at that point and like Susan is also still trying to save Buddy's soul like when he's investigating what's going on with the guitar and uh, everything there it's now I could take either either here like I'd lean towards soul music purely on the basis of like 
it was a more enjoyable read like i do like acknowledge that making money has a lot of great ideas but because it falls like short on kind of all of them it's like it does explore them to a certain extent and what's there is kind of interesting it's just like it's so anticlimactic in like everything it's doing that i'm like i feel at least like soul music had that climate almost has that climax if we do still have that issue with susan and her parents which i remember we talked about a lot and i was yeah i was also pretty bummed about that it's my personal preference but like if you would push making money i'd probably happily put it there i personally say i'll say soul music but i could do either either they're both fairly similar in terms of where they're at yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think I'd still just argue for it being above just on the basis of it. I just feel there's more to making money, even if it isn't realized very well. And and look, part of that That's might be recency bias. Like I, I, I'm thinking to myself, God, I'm struggling to recall the like ideas that, that set me kind of a fire in soul music. And that was that much because I read it a long time ago. But it doesn't have a lot of ideas because I remember we talked about it, like the biggest weakness that soul music had was just like yeah. how shallow it was. But it has moments rather like it's it's dealing a lot more with like uh you know an enjoyable story rather as like a thematic mine so like um whereas making money like has like lots of good ideas i would argue it has less like significant like or iconic moments that's that's the thing because i remember i remember going into soul music thinking like oh yeah soul music i remember this being really good but what i actually remember were just the iconic moments that are like built in your head and like but there is skill in that as well like you know building these iconic moments like uh the idea like the uh touring cart like going through all the the cabbage fields and stuff like that and uh death on his like deathly motorcycle towards yeah, the end death on the motorcycle is the big image uh, but I, I think you compared that at the time to it's sort of like a heavy metal album art like it's this big image that hasn't really earned mm. itself it's just presented there i was like isn't this really cool but i feel like this one is kind of doing something kind of similar in that it's kind of taking the ideas of going postal and not going very far with them and saying yeah but it's a completely new novel but like it feels more like you know paid dlc than like an additional novel yeah, but again, it's always done something similar because Susan, while she is and, and certainly becomes a, a very interesting character, she's essentially repeating Mort's arc in Soul Music of like, she has to stand in for death. She has this, you know, feeling of like, oh, I can do death better than death and, and impose a certain sense of justice on this. And then she learns that it's just too big of a thing for her to have power over. Uh, and I like, I, I just think that Sep, like them going through the cabbage shells, now, that's all quite fun but i don't know if i'd really call any of it iconic you know i the idea of rock and roll into this world's just like sexier than banking into this world so <laughs> <laughs> that could be it like i it's just like for me i don't think there's like a massive difference in quality and i'm just going for which one i preferred i just remember even though like soul music was a bit of a letdown when we read it i still remember enjoying it. i think more than making money which is funny considering when i came into this i thought like yeah but it has so many problems that we've come away with now that I'm like, eh. it's, but listen, it's, as I said, it's the tiniest margin here. And I could happily like push making money in there if you wanted. I'm fairly happy with either one because they're both so close. Okay. Well, I mean, for the time being, cause it will mean we won't have to argue whether it's better or worse than the last continent. Because <laughs> gossip of cell music uh, at the, at the new number 30. I'd probably put it above last continent. I'll say that much anyway. So, <laughs> I, I think it's better than Soul Music because of the reasons I've argued. Um, although, again, I'm conscious of what, when you're arguing about a book you've read, like, 
whatever it was, like two years ago, we don't sell music. There's going to be a certain amount of recency bias. Mm. But I think if I put it below soul music, then, then it's like, well, what is keeping it above the, the last continent? You know, because at the moment I'm saying it has these, a lot of interesting ideas, you know, a colorful cast of characters that like, perhaps like Moist doesn't have an arc, but he's still like, he's still a more fleshed out character than any of the, the three band members in, um, in soul music. Mm, true yeah so as a colorful cast of characters led by him and it has a lot of interesting ideas that just aren't executed well enough or aren't aren't given room enough to breed and for me that's better than like the lack of ideas in soul music but if we're saying oh so like you know if i'm to agree to put it below soul music then i'm uh, then i'm saying oh yeah it doesn't matter if it's uh, like lack of ideas it's, it's all right because soul music is more fun than then you you could theoretically argue that about last continent because last continent has a lot of fun set pieces as well it just doesn't quite hang together yeah. and that's see at this point like i feel like it is just boiling down to taste like i really because well, it always like, is I mean, the margin like here very subjective well yeah it is it is but like we, we are trying to deal with it objectively like and this is what like the whole argument is for like so um yeah like <laughs> there is like some truth in what you're saying in that i just do think that like uh, rock and roll is sexier than yeah. bank accounting like you know so like it's kind of the difference between like oh here's like a book on like uh let's say the english economy in the 80s uh versus like here's an album of 80s rock music like you know and like uh, it might not be great rock music but like it's probably more fun to uh listen to than it is to read something that i'm less interested true in. you but, know but, I- but then would you, would you say there's a case that like he has a harder job in making money than he does in soul music and we're kind of saying, well, it feels very harsh to say he failed at both of them in that these are two of our lower ranking books, but perhaps that he didn't succeed as much as he had in other books, but he had a harder task ahead of him in making money than he did in soul music. Well, like, so, so possibly. What, but... what I'm saying is making money, you could argue, is a nobler failure than soul music. Uh, yeah, I suppose, yeah. I'm just like I'm also thinking yeah, but the previous book he had was like about stamps basically. So I'm like, yeah. it's it's kind of, it's it's a difficult one to forgive because like he went from stamps to money, and I feel like money should have been easier. But like, and listen, we're just boiling it down to like simple concepts rather than storylines here at this point. So like, um, uh, listen, yeah, I think there is something in what you say in that like it's it's a more noble failure than um, soul music because like you said it's kind of baffling how he took something like as rock and roll as rock and roll and managed to not do a good job of it whereas like making money he he you know yeah he did like th- there are good concepts mined there just not enough so yeah actually you know what you, you've sold me on it yeah so let's put it then as a uh, new okay. number 30 life fantastic above soul music right so then that 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 being that our next one is unseen academicals which i have never read before yeah, Look forward yeah. To that. Oh, one more note about make money just that we ranked the end of it. it it won the locus award for best novel which given all we've said of it i honestly couldn't say i'm not very to be honest like i, I don't not very familiar with the minutiae of, of like the kind of famous speculative fiction awards like the locus the nebulas and the, and the hugos and so on but um i can't help but feel if that's like a case of a sort of legacy award like you know this is the award for Terry Pratchett in general, rather than for this book in particular. You know, you often mm. hear about like the Oscars, like, uh, was it, um, what was it, beat out Citizen? Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, yeah, DiCaprio in, in The Revenant, or, or what was He got The Revenant and like, My yeah. Valley beat Ooh. Citizen Kane, because they kind of felt like they had to give Cecil B. DeMille an Oscar 
sooner or later. People say about Scorsese with The Departed, yeah. but I, I would kind of argue The Departed just was, while it probably was a motivation, I, I sort of argue it was the best film that year anyway. It's just a long time since I've seen it. Any case, that's one more uh, bit of minutiae there. And now we, we've covered that and we have uh, Unseen Academicals, the football one. He's gone from money to football. Uh, a subject you probably find less sexy. But I, like Rude Hullet in the 90s, find much sexier. You are going to be talking so much about that and I'm just going to be like, really? I didn't know that. I'm just going to have like a little machine that every time like you stop talking, I'm just going to say, really? I didn't know that. Respond to it. And that's going to be all I'll have to contribute because my knowledge of football is absolute zero. I think my best knowledge of football comes from the 1994 uh, Super Nintendo game Striker. That's where all of my knowledge comes from. But the one tooting skitter, you could write what you know about football on the back of a stamp. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the one thing I do know from that um, is that Brazil is considered a very good football team. That's one thing I <laughs> learned really from Super Nintendo. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> well, actually, maybe it will. If, like, are they playing against Clash or something, and they just happen to be really skilled? Who knows? <laughs> okay, <laughs> it'll be okay, fun to see. That, that is that, listeners. Thanks very much uh, for for listening to this. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at radiomorefork@gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter just by searching for Radio Morepork. Uh, you can leave us a rating or review on, on iTunes or on whatever podcast service you use. That'd, that'd be lovely. Thanks very much. And uh, yeah, goodbye. See you, everyone. Sorry, I was eating a biscuit and I didn't want the listeners there because I can't share with them. But the Russian actor is still a hundred and seventy something. Thank you.